I'm actually using um, training to be more conscious as a, as a as an opportunity to be present, to be mindful, kind of like when we're lifting rocks, right? Yeah. Well, how do you take training, your typical weightlifting, and turn it into that where you have to now pay attention to positions in your body, you have to pay attention to muscle lengths, like what muscle is moving, and teaching people to become more present in the moment. So I use it as this opportunity for everybody to become more conscious and more present in the moment because – if you really want to build a great body, being present is going to accelerate that, right? Yeah. I need to pay attention to what's moving, what's contracting, what's doing the work, where do I feel this, mm-hmm. how am I doing this? Like, there's a lot of little intricate questions yeah. you can be asking yourself to actually make you more present in the moment. You know, my training is meditative. It's you know, my eyes closed, my eyes are closed. I'm paying attention to my breath. I'm paying attention to my contraction. What's where do I feel it? Am I feeling in the right place? Um, and then between sets, it's again going back into the parasympathetic breath, right? So mm-hmm. like how can I get myself out of that massive sympathetic state and go to the parasympathetic breath so I calm down? Now my perceived effort is much less and now That's- I can do more work. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul talks with pro bodybuilder Ben Pekalski. Among his competition successes... Ben won the 2008 Mr. Canada competition and placed second in the 2013 Arnold Classic. He is known for his intelligent and healthy approach to muscle building, holds an honors degree in kinesiology, and quotes himself as being a lifelong student of fitness and nutrition. His journey of health began at 12 years of age when he read a book on the benefits of vegetarianism. And yes, like Paul, Ben was also a vegetarian for a period of time. Ben, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. It is absolutely awesome to have you here. Pleasure's mine, man. It's been a great day. Got yes. to experience the, the day in the life of Mr. Paul Check. Yeah, you got some stone lifting. It's a true in. pleasure, man. We did some really interesting stuff, right? <laughs> you, you, you smoked me out. You cleaned my energy. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did a sage clearing on yeah, you. Yeah, we had some amazing food. We had some amazing conversation and uh, some rock uh, stacking, which yeah. is amazing. So thank drumming. you. drumming. Yeah, yeah, some drumming. That was maybe the best part of the day. I can't and forget some, that one. And some good tobacco. Yeah. Vaporized. So, uh, we, I, you know, I, I ran into you at On It. We got to chat for a while there. You spent some time in, in one of my workshops. Or did you do one or two? I can't remember. It was one. I think one we're, we're infant doing, development, maybe? Yeah. Walking. Yeah. Walking. Oh, movement. walk, run, wiggle, and crawl? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. And so, uh, I didn't realize how well-known you were at the time. I'm really I, not. I'm not that cool. But I'll tell you, you did something really cool at that seminar. There's a boy there. I don't know if you remember this. this I'll call him a boy. He was a young, guy, young man. And he, he was walking. He was very rigid. Yeah. And, and uh, you watched him walk, and you go, well, go do it again. So, you talked about his um, his lack of development in certain stages. Yes. It blew my mind, man. I just want to say that. It was amazing. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it just wasn't swinging his arms, right? He just kept yeah. his arms very rigid. So, yeah. you made him actually intentionally swing his arms. Yes. And you can see the guy's confidence change and it, you know, it, his whole body language changed yes. just by changing the way he walked. It, it's quite amazing because many people don't realize that the mind is infused into the body. It's as close to your body as tails is to heads on a coin. Right. And you can't do one without the other, right? I can't give you a coin and just keep half the coin, right? right. So the body is the um, physical, tangible expression of the invisible, subtle mind. And, you know, just like if you have a remote control car, 
you can't see the, you might not even see the guy controlling it but the car's moving around right but that car's doing whatever that remote control tells it to do so when i work with people that have these kinds of developmental blockages be it infant development or structural blockages because i know how the psyche fuses into the body and what each part of the body represents to the psyche all I got to do is look at a person's body, watch them walk, ask them to do certain movements that I specifically choose to see if they have access to key energetic areas. Right. And then I pretty much can pin the tail on the donkey with just a couple of questions. And you got to see that. But Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, good. So, of course, uh, several people came out to me and said, do you know who that guy is that you're talking to? I said, well, he's a big, strong guy, and I don't want him to put me in a headlock. I know that for sure. And then they told me, you're a very famous bodybuilder. So um, when I got the chance to have you here to do this interview with me, I thought, I'm going to look into Ben and get some history on him. And I was pretty blown away. I mean, you've made it way up to the top of the ladder in professional bodybuilding. Yeah, I did all right. Uh, you know, I, I set a goal at a very young age, and I myopically pursued that goal. And, mm. um, you know, I, I achieved relative success in bodybuilding i think yeah. um it allowed me to overcome a lot of the reasons why i started you know yeah. the fear the insecurity all those things mm -hmm. um did i make it as far as i thought maybe i could have no but i think that might have there may actually be a blessing in that right yeah we'll get into that yeah. too i mean that's important but that said i mean you're in the top 10 yeah, was top 10 in the world top handful of people in the world for mm -hmm. physique for development for size for everything right yeah. so that's a it's a serious commitment and um tunnel vision that puts you you know in the upper echelon of athletes and no matter if it was any other sport you'd be in the top everybody would know who you are mm -hmm. right and and everybody in the body world building world i found does know who you are <laughs> and uh you know, I haven't read bodybuilding magazines in a long time. I wrote for Muscle and Fitness years and years ago, and I think I probably had three or four articles in there. And I wrote for uh, what was Muscle Media 2000, and then they changed the name to just Muscle Media maybe after right. that. Dan Shane. Yeah. Oh, uh, no. Uh, Bill Phillips. Bill Phillips. Yeah. Is that his? Yeah, yeah. it's Bill Phillips' magazine. I did write for... Uh, the one in Canada, what's the bodybuilding magazine in Canada? Was Muscle Mag. Muscle Mag. Yeah, no uh, longer exists. Yeah, I wrote a couple of articles, and they actually published a book, my first book on abdominal conditioning way back when. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember the name, Awesome Abs or something like that. But I was really, really impressed, and I watched uh, several videos, interviews with you, and people talking to you about your, you know, stepping away from competition and... I was really very impressed with your answers. I could see that you've grown and matured a lot in many ways that a lot of bodybuilders don't. And so I thought, well, I'm really impressed with Ben. He's, he's finding his center. He's really, you know, learning that there's more to life than, you know, winning a bodybuilding competition. It really is. I was, I'm very blessed that I accomplished my goals relatively early in life in yeah. bodybuilding. And uh, as I mentioned in some other interviews, you realize that, you know, many people pursue money, many people pursue physique, whatever it may be, you realize that the journey is the goal, right? When, yeah. you, when you reach these end things that you think is going to fulfill you or, or you're going to feel amazing about yourself, it's, it didn't fulfill me. It didn't change the person I was. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, I was very lucky to achieve that early and, and have that realization. The external goal is not the goal. It's the internal goal. That's really where we want to go. Yeah. So what I'd like to start off with is, is if wondering if you can give us an overview of your path to becoming a professional bodybuilder and share some of the highlights and challenges that you experienced along yeah, the way. And lots of highlights, lots of challenges. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the reason I think, you know, looking back on my life, the reason I think I got into bodybuilding was because I was a very fearful kid. I had a very explosive father. As, as oh, yeah. Angry. Well, that's coming up. Yeah. <laughs> so, we'll go right into that. So, I had a lot of fear around any authority figure. And I would stutter when, when I was speaking to an authority figure. Um, you know, speech impediment, because anytime somebody came up to me, I would just freeze and I would shake and, and any authority figure, and that came from my dad. Yeah. Um, and he was never abusive physically to me, um, but uh, extremely explosive temper. So I literally, mm. from the time I was born, I would stand there and just literally shake and, and fear of him, you know, potentially hitting me. Yeah. Um, never did, but, um, you know, that kind of transcended into, even into my, my university years where like I would be around, I would be around authorities and I would not be able to articulate myself. And, um, so I just thought I had something wrong with my brain or I thought it was stupid or, um, but in reality it was just like, no, you're just really afraid. And when you're fearful, I was choking on my words. So I started to develop this, um, you know, desire to overcome my fears and mm. i was i was seeking honestly ways to punish myself like i was punishing myself with any type of physical endeavor i could so i started off with endurance running and every day i'd run until i threw up and that was kind of my you know how i punished myself it's in some way i internalized it and i thought that was a good thing right because you'd read magazines you're like oh you know you, you did something to you threw up that was a badge of honor mm-hmm. so i was like oh, i'm doing something good and then i turned that into bodybuilding and I, and I started pursuing this desire to be the hardest working guy that anyone's ever trained with so mm-hmm. anytime i trained with somebody my intention was to make them quit or me to destroy them and i wanted that to be my badge of honor throughout my entire career. So anytime I trained with somebody, like I was looking for weaknesses, like I smell blood and I'm looking to crush you. Like I mm-hmm. want you to know that I'm working harder than you. Mm-hmm. And that was just my insecurity, right? That was me mm-hmm. thinking that if I, if I puffed up my feathers, I can um, overcome this, this fear and this laziness that I kind of attached to as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it started. I started training at 15 and, and just enjoyed it, did well. Um, many, many mental barriers along the way. So I grew up in a family that was overweight, alcoholics, drug addicts, um, not a lot of people who are successful. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so my, um, you know, past wasn't necessarily one, you know, riddled with people who are extremely motivational. So right. when I when I reached a kind of an impasse where it was challenging for me, I didn't have the skills yet developed to know how to uh, overcome it. So for me, it was just do more, work harder. Like yeah. that has to be the way to go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what led me into professional bodybuilding is this thing that was probably the most polar opposite of what anyone would have expected me to do, mm. um, for my, for my childhood. You know, I was overweight as a kid. I was, like I said, a learned disability, speech impediment. And, uh, you know, it was the a complete polar opposite what I decided to do. And, you know, the, the biggest thing, the biggest obstacle became my greatest um, blessing, right? This, this challenge that I had with actually working hard um, became the thing that became my strength. So I became very mentally strong. I could overcome anything because I've, I've taken my body and my mind so far yes. that anything you subjected me to, I was like, okay, and I'll do it. And then I learned to do it with a smile on my face, right? I learned mm. to do it and be appreciative for what it was giving me. And I think that may be the biggest thing that I took away from bodybuilding was, 
you know, at 15 years old, I was weak. I was, I was lazy. I was insecure. And as I built myself through whatever means it was, um, it made me a stronger person in knowing myself in mm-hmm. my ability. Like there's, there's nothing that I wouldn't subject myself to because mm-hmm. I just know that mentally I have the the fortitude to do it. Yeah. And the Navy yeah. SEALs would have loved a guy like you. Yeah. So it's funny. I have a lot of friends now that are Navy SEALs and I was like, man, if I hadn't found bodybuilding, I'm pretty sure that's what I would have done. You, you got, that's, that mindset is what it takes for any of the elite soldier systems. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm as strong as those guys because some of the things they do are just obscene. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty confident that I wouldn't have stopped. <laughs> yeah. Well, that you know, when they right. sit, take you through BUDS training, it's really to see if they can get you to stop. Yeah. And so it's, you know, work yourself till you vomit and do it again and do it again and do it all night. Do it soaking wet. Do it freezing cold. Right. Do it with sand in your crotch, in your eyes. Do it in the cold water. You know, it's all all the elite military trainings are really uh, mental tests. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. I mean, there's so much beauty in in, um, eliminating the weak, right? Well, you have to for for those types of units or they they end up eliminating you. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Your own guys. So, um, you know, I teach my students a system to of archetypes to describe the process that we go through in life. And... It's basically a four-stage process. So if you imagine a wheel, you can say we start at the left. So if you're looking at a wheel, there's four spokes. Mm -hmm. The left-pointing spoke, we'll call it the west side. We'll call that springtime. That's the archetype of the child. So that's when we're we come into the world and we're you know parented. We don't know what the world's all about. Mom and dad have to teach us what's right, what's wrong, what's up, what's down, what's hot, what's sharp. And so then we go through the child archetype, and then we enter the warrior archetype when we go through puberty and start rejecting our parents' ideas and our religious programming and uh, rejecting authority figures and trying to figure out who we are and try to figure out what do we stand for, what are we willing to fight for in life, either fight for to make it through our own challenges going, you know, that's the beginning of the hero's journey if you take the hero's journey. If you don't, then you just stay stuck in your programming and then you repress all that and it becomes digestive trouble, cancer, and all sorts of other stuff because you're trapped in a box and you just walk around complaining about how you hate your boss or the banking system sucks or the president sucks. And that's... It seems like most people are stuck there. Yeah. Well, that's being trapped in the box, right? So that's sort of the path of conf- confirmation mm-hmm. to become someone else's puppet and, and hope that you know God takes you to some heaven later on. But then we, well, as we mature and we figure out who we are and we develop our skills, whether they be skills at work or uh, skills in life or skills as an entertainer, whatever we, we do to get ourselves through life as an independent, separate from mommy and daddy's support and from handouts like government, you know, people taking uh, unemployment insurance forever and trying to stretch the system. That's all still the child archetype because you're staying on the hind titty. Mm-hmm. But to get out of the warrior stage, you got to enter what I call the king and queen stage. That happens when you have either your own business, you're paying your own bills, you have your own house, your own territory. You know, this is my space. Usually, to get into the king uh, queen stage, legitimately, you have to reach a high enough skill that you're highly respected 
in whatever you're doing or you're still kind of working for somebody else. You mm-hmm. don't have a so to be the king, you have to be like you did, you know, one of the top guys in the world on stage or, you know, I've reached a high enough level in my profession that I would be a legitimate in the king stage. I have yep. my own system of education. I have my own home. I have my own, you know, mini empire, right? So that's the king and the queen stage. And so the king and the queen stage is where we're usually making more money than most people. We're highly regarded. We we end up having a territory, but we often have to protect it. I have to protect my intellectual property. We've got to protect our money. We've right. got to protect our, our children. We've got to protect our employees. We've got to make sure they have insurance. So there's a lot of work to protect the territory, just like every king has to protect his territory. And what you see is... When the child comes into the world, their life's quite simple, right? They don't have to worry about bills or mortgages or where the food comes from. It's just, you know, it's someone supporting you. You're right. being taken care of. Then as we go to school, our minds get more and more complex. We have more and more ideas, more and more what we should and shouldn't do. And so we see that our level of complexity, the complexity of our thinking structure, our relational structure, and our life gets more and more complex. By the time we get to a king stage or queen stage, our life can be very complex. So now we have often employees and we have tons of, you know, worries and overhead and investments and whatever it might be. And so life can get so complicated that after a while, we actually can run into a midlife crisis. And a midlife crisis research shows can happen as early as 18 years of age today. But typically, it happens around 50. Mine happened at 50, and my life got so complicated and with so many people involved, and it was taking so much energy to constantly do all the appearances, traveling around the world on airplanes, and having to be on stage all the time, and answer questions, and do this marketing, and make this video. And, you know, you get to the point where it's just like a groundhog day. You can't run fast enough. And you kind of realize, oh my God, I've created this ego that's so big, I don't have the energy to keep inflating it every day. And so you you come to a tipping point where you start to get exhausted, you can lose your sex drive, you can lose your lust for your work, things that you once love are boring as shit. And then you have an opportunity, if, you're, if, you, if we listen early enough, we can get through it without the midlife crisis. But if we're too invested in, in our self, in our projection of ourself, you know, in your business, your identity, your bodybuilder, or Paul Check, the whatever people think he is, then you, you just, you can burn out. But if you catch wind of it and you follow your heart, you can avoid that midlife crisis, which is real. And I've had to coach many through it. And I'm glad I went through it because I know how painful it can be. But the point is you come to this tipping point where you realize deep inside yourself, I have got to simplify my life. I've got to have time for myself. I've, uh, and by then we usually have kids and we realize if we're not spending time with our kids, it's already causing lots of trouble. Uh, oftentimes our relationship's getting rocky with our spouse because she's frustrated that you're not around and she's having to raise the kids by herself. And her life's complicated, especially if she's involved in the business. So you say, okay, how do I fucking get out of this? But... Then we come into the opportunity for what's called the second simplicity in spiritual training. And that's where I classify the beginning of the wise man, wise woman phase where we become an elder. We become someone who's been through a lot of stuff. 
we can look at the teenagers stealing cars, getting drunk, having wild, passionate sex without protection, and all the things we go, oh, yes, I used to do that. And yeah, and so now instead of going that dumb fuck and wanting to whack them, we go, yeah, hmm, part of me wants to whack them, but the other part knows I was worse than that. Right. So we see ourselves, and so we start having a lot of empathy and compassion for people because we can see everybody down from this metaphorical right. mountain. We're looking down the trail and say, oh, yes, there I am. There's <laughs> me at 10. There's me at 14. Yes. There's me at 20. There's me at 30. And, um, you know, getting into that second simplicity is really where I think we really truly begin to live because if we simplify our life adequately, we can still have a good income coming in. Our business can be more efficient. We can put our priorities in place to be with the people we love and know we need to be with. And we can actually have time for meditation and various spiritual practices that really start to grow us to know who we really are outside of just what we've created in the world. So I'm setting the stage uh, to, to show you these cycles from the child to the warrior to the king and the queen to the wise man, wise woman, from simplicity to complexity and back to simplicity. Now, some never make it back to the – many don't make it to the wise man, wise woman stage. Right. So, you you, uh, you got like Steve Jobs, you've got Michael Jackson, you got all these people that – Tiger Woods uh, – um, Mike Tyson, the list is long, right? You see their life gets complicated, but the wheels fly off and, and or or they go into rehab or drug rehab or you know, or they do crazy shit and get themselves arrested because they're, you know, being silly with drugs or any number of things. But having worked with countless elite athletes, um those cer- those some certainly uh some are currently do pursue their athletic goals with genuine interest in seeing what they're capable of. Like, so there are athletes that are genuinely just wanting to see what they're capable of, or it's a genuine love for them. Like I've worked with a lot of Olympic athletes. I remember I worked with the Olympic kayak and canoe team and um, Norman Bellingham. And what was the other guy's name? Greg Barton. These guys both got gold medals in the Olympics, and they were super fit, super strong, really committed guys. And I remember working with them, and they were passionate about their sport. They weren't pursuing uh, some kind of a – they weren't compensating, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Sure. So, they just legitimately lo- loved it. This month is Movement Month at the Czech Institute. And all month long, we're focused on helping you build more creative, exciting, and effective workouts. If you're looking to optimize your gains in the gym, the kettlebell is a great choice. It's one of Paul's favorite pieces of equipment because, used properly, the kettlebell is much more realistic to the kinds of activities people have to do in their daily lives and in their athletic performance. That means the carryover from kettlebell training to those activities is much greater. But there's just one problem. Very few people know how to use it properly. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mike Salemi to bring you his Mastering the Kettlebell online course. Mastering the Kettlebell offers over 400 videos that take you from the very basics, like grip and positions, all the way to program design techniques and performance benchmarks. It's also the only online kettlebell course that was built from the ground up with a holistic perspective. So you'll learn exactly how to tailor your programs to your needs and your clients' needs for incredible results. 
and the learning experience is unlike other online courses. As Paul says, taking this course is just like being in the room with Mike. So if you've been wanting to learn how to use the kettlebell or to use it more efficiently, we can't recommend a course more highly than Mastering the Kettlebell. Head over right now to checkinstitute.com forward slash mastering dash the dash kettlebell. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash mastering dash the dash kettlebell. And when you check out, enter check 20 to claim your 20% discount as well as a secret Paul Check mini course on working in. Now, let's get back to Paul and Ben. Yeah, so now I've seen over and over again that a huge percent of athletes, whether it be typical sports, weightlifting, bodybuilding, are actually doing what they're doing as a means of trying to heal something or compensate for something that's broken in them. And you alluded to that already. So uh, I want to share some of these examples because I'm ultimately wanting to get your opinion on some of these things. So here's some examples of things that drives people to high levels of athletic success, but it may actually end up leading to more problems than good, not only for them, but everybody around them. Uh, being physically, sexually, or emotionally, or mentally abused, which, you know, you were essentially mentally abused, yep. as you described. Uh, fathers abusing or diminishing their sons or family me- members, resulting in them feeling the need to be strong, or a good fighter to deal with him, which is me. My father was brutal. Yep. You know, it was dangerous around him. Right. So you were physically abused where yeah. I'd come home and the whole house would be turned upside down. Yeah. Like everything would just be thrown everywhere. So like yeah. my response is probably very, not quite as physical as yours, but like emotionally, it was just, I was always afraid I was going to get hit. Yeah. Right? So is that better or worse? <laughs> well, you know, I would watch my father beat my brothers and sisters up or my mother up and I got my share of ass kickings as well. And, and I just realized inside of myself, I had to get strong enough. I had to learn to fight because one day I had to stop him before he really way. put somebody in the hospital, you yeah. know. So it it brought the tiger out of me. And I, I uh, you know, me and my, my little brother, who was young year, one year younger than me, he ultimately committed suicide like we were talking about previously. But I remember being like eight years old and he'd be slapping my mother around and him, my brother and I would just pick up everything we could throw at him and we'd just go at him. And, you know, we'd be throwing bouncing toy trucks off his head or whatever we could do. And then, you know, as soon as he got done with her, he'd come after us and we'd have to run like hell if we could lucky enough to get away. But there was something inside of me that just, I was willing to die to protect my mother. And so that drove me into martial arts. That got me started weightlifting. That ultimately propelled me (laughs) paradoxically. Right. So turning the tables on you. How important was that in your development? Because, like, I, well, I always question that, right? Yeah. I always question, like, how essential was that to the, becoming the man that you are? Well, we're going to get to that. All right. That's coming. Um, there's, there is that. But if a person doesn't learn to listen to their inner voice and they don't heal the pain that sets the stage for potentially great achievements in life and spiritual achievements, meaning healing then that very stage destroys them, right? And yep. and that's what I know you've been through. And part yep. of the reason I'm asking these questions of you is because you have achieved a very high level of success as a bodybuilder, 
you you've gotten yourself to be you know you're on stage at 280 you're you're a very big strong man you've been in professional bodybuilding where there's drug use so you've really pushed the edges of growing yourself and then finding that tipping point so i want to share some of these other things that lead to this because i'm setting the stage for the questions that are coming um being told that they weren't smart enough or wouldn't amount to anything. I got that a lot in school. I hated school. Me too. My teachers told me, oh, you're never going to amount to anything. In fact, when I was in the 10th grade, uh, which I only was in for three months, um, my girlfriend at the time, who then became my wife and is the mother of my son, who's now going to be 40 this summer, she was a very good volleyball player. She was selected out of uh, high school for the Canadian national volleyball team tryouts because she was like one of the top girls. But one of her coaches walked up to me one day and said, you should stay the hell away from her. She deserves better than you and you're never going to amount to anything. And stuff like that just used to piss me off, you know. So I got irritated by teachers talking like that as well. Um being labeled small or wimpy, getting abused by older brothers or, or bigger, stronger kids, not being uh, engaged by uh, one or both parents, um, and finding that as long as they were bigger, faster, and stronger, that they got the love that they didn't get at home. Every one of those. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Not feeling intelligent, usually because mathematical, logical schoolwork wasn't their natural mode of learning. Now, interestingly, if you look at the common styles of learning you have visual which is the dominant auditory second highest kinesthetic third highest mathematical logical according to howard gardner's research who is an expert on learning from harvard university if i remember right mathematical logical learning style is only suitable to five to eight percent of the world population but 95 percent of information imparted in elementary school high school and universities come by way of the mathematical logical system uh-huh. So a lot of the great athletes think they're dumb, but right. they're kinesthetic geniuses, right? That's, right? That's, yeah. Or they're visual learners, yeah. or they're auditory learners, right? Interesting. So a lot of people don't realize our school system's not designed to educate us, and that the people that were the teacher's pets and got the you know, valedictorian were really just cut-and-paste memorizers. And, and I'm not being critical of them. I'm saying that they're geared towards taking in bits of information and symbols off of a page. And guys like you and I are like, wait a minute, uh, you're talking about how to castrate a bull, but where's the bull? <laughs> like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you hold it down? You right. know? So having uh, a lot of muscle is, very, uh, is a very important and primal means of detouring an enemy. Um, for example, dogs will raise their hair, you know, make their necks look big. Bears will stand up on their hind feet. Um, animals will show their teeth. But they're basically trying to use a show of strength to avoid the, the risk of injury mm-hmm. and co- in, co- in combat. So I'm curious, how was your, we already alluded to this, so we, we already touched on this, but how was your relationship with your father? How do you feel there, uh, there is any um, and do you feel there's any developmental pain that led consciously or unconsciously to you becoming as big and strong as you did? Now, you've already addressed that. So the next question is, uh, have you observed this connection with bodybuilders, strength and combat of athletes and sports athletes in general? Absolutely. Well, I think it goes without saying that every one of us 
has something there, right? I really believe in bodybuilding. I've noticed some people are, some people pursue bodybuilding because they need it. And some people pursue bodybuilding because bodybuilding chooses them. Like there's some people who just pick up a weight and they grow. And it's very easy to pursue things that you're very good at. So there's some guys, I think, no question, are so genetically blessed that they pursue that. Yeah. Um, But then there's everyone else who, you know, probably 90% of the people who have some deep emotional um, need or uh, they're trying to fill something in their life or fill a gap. And, um, you know, from all the guys that I deal with on the high circuits and the pros, certainly there's, it's either mom, it's dad, it's picked on. Like you said, a lot, I think that was very, very common as well. And in all of those things, right. It's some combination they're in. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, there's no doubt for me that that gave me, the confidence because there was there was points where i was like you know i wanted to fight back yeah when i was being abused and i yeah. like you know, same idea attacking my mom kind of stuff and i'm like i need to be able to defend this i remember the day when i was no longer scared yeah um, i remember the day when i was like okay if you get angry right now i'm gonna take you out yeah and i'm not gonna put up, put up with this anymore yeah and I, thank goodness never had to do it yeah um, but i think every I mean, it's hard to speak for everybody, but many athletes um, definitely deal with that. Yeah. I remember <clears throat> my father n- never once said good job. No matter how hard I worked, I could not get approval. Um, the first time my father ever told me I'd done a good job came as quite a shock to me. Um, I was 19. I was racing stock cars and I was very successful. I set three track records my rookie year and we had the biggest race of the year, which is called the Island Invitational where, where it's a 50 mile race. If I remember right, 50 mile, 50 lap. I can't remember long. It's the longest race of the year, but there's no class division in the, the cheaper, less expensive cars, which is what I was driving are racing against the fast expensive cars. And it's whoever can get there the fastest. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I managed to get second place in this race, which with a cheesy, you know, $30,000 car and guys are in there with cars three times that expensive. And it pretty much blew everybody's mind. And I'm in the pits and my crew is just ecstatic, you know, and then newspapers are taking pictures. And all of a sudden my father walks up and he goes, I think he shook my hand. He goes, that was impressive. Where the hell did you learn to drive like that? And I was in such shock because it was the first time in my life he had acknowledged that I did something well. And I just started laughing. I said, well, you didn't get home from work till 5.30 at night usually. And you know that car that you used to think I drove in the fields? I was driving around the logging roads being Starsky and Hutch all day long. But you see, that really drove that need for acknowledgement, right? right? And speaking along those lines, like... I never heard I love you from my dad. I never got a hug until I was 21 years old. Yes. So there's a lot of, a lot of deep. Well, I never heard I love you. Well, I, I remember it because, you know, the day that he said I love you was the day because he, he thought I was dead. So I disappeared for a few weeks. Wow. And I just never called anybody. I just took off. I think I was about 21, maybe, maybe a little younger, maybe 19. Um, and just never called anybody. I was like, well, nobody gives a shit anyways. I'm just going to go do whatever I want to do and go about my business. And they called the police. They thought I was dead. And when I got home, they're like, you know, for the first time I got a hug and I got, I love you. Wow. So yeah, it was, that was, um, that was maybe the first time when I realized that it was, uh, such an impact on me. Cause you know, as, as a young boy, you kind of don't pay attention to it. You just, 
I didn't even think I wasn't conscious enough to think that there was an issue with my dad. It's just that's how my dad is, right? Yeah, you know, in the bodybuilding world, um, I haven't kept up with it. Uh, you know, I stopped following bodybuilding kind of when after Arnold phased out of it and got into acting and stuff. But he was such an impressive person to look at. Yep. But he seemed like the genetic wonder kid. But Frank Zane seemed to me like the the Zen master who That's right. was just the kind of the epitome of balance and focus, and was somebody who bodybuilded not because he had compensations going, but because he was wanting to truly master the human physique. Right, and and so, and then there was other guys, you know. Uh, Franco Colombo and all the big guys, Lou Ferrigno and all those guys, and I didn't study them well enough to know, but I really saw I agree with you that, that Frank Zane was like the Zen monk and Arnold was like the, the wonder kid, not that he didn't have to work for it, because at that level, as you know, everyone's got to work for mm-hmm. it. But So I did, I did get to see someone who I think was born to be a bodybuilder. Another guy like that's Bill Pearl. Yeah. You know, he was someone who was... Uh, really, I think a genuine, um, authentic expression of what a bodybuilder can be, and was a very is a very spiritual man. I think know? the unfortunate reality is, like the people who may be genetically blessed and chosen for bodybuilding now, um, aren't, unfortunately have to push beyond what their genetics allow. Yes. Right? Yeah, like that's yeah. just the unfortunate reality. Like drugs level the playing field. Right? Yeah. Maybe not level it, but allows guys who maybe wouldn't have been at that level to push a little harder with the drugs. Yeah. All of a sudden, everybody's at the same playing field. So now you're looking at these guys like like Zane, who obviously still exists. There's many guys who are ridiculously genetically blessed who can't really show those beautiful genetic physiques because they have to push yeah. so much further just to be able to stand on stage. With yeah. It's guys. a completely different kind of yeah, ball it is, game. It is. And, and, and it's sad. throughout sports, right? Sure. I mean, a lot of people don't realize one of the most heavy drug users in sports are elite tennis players. Really? Yeah, because they have to play these long, grueling matches. So mm-hmm. their drugs aren't designed to make them bigger because that would slow them down. It's designed to enhance their capacity to recover and to right. be able to keep the pace up. But uh, uh, there's lots of drugs in, in tennis, and there's a lot of drugs, as I'm sure you know, in competitive cycling. Sure. So there's drugs in places where people don't realize there's right. drugs, right? So. So I'm curious, what advice would you offer parents to help them realize the pain and the danger of ineffective parenting and the kinds of painful overcompensation it creates in people and athletes? So if you could say to the parents of the world, hey, look, be careful because you might do more damage than that kid can ever bodybuild his way out of or martial arts his way out of yeah as you and i discussed like that's become my biggest passion in life now right yeah i think it's important i've transcended this desire to continue to build muscle and now i'm really focusing on you know what does it actually mean to be a great dad what does it mean to, to create a great dynamic with your children and um i think the easiest thing for people to realize is it's parenting is not about what you teach your children. Parenting is about yourself and how you can become a better version of yourself to reflect on your children, right? And so many people are reading parenting books, which is ironic to me because there's so little that you can do. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot you can do ultimately, but the big thing that I realize is kids, they they hear nothing of what you say and see 100% of what you do. Yes. And when you realize that as a parent, 
uh, it really shifts. Um, yeah, I think it should shift your perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's certainly a lot of damage that can be done by um, parents trying to impart their expectations of what this child should be on that child. So if if I'm a parent who's very concerned with what everybody thinks, they're concerned about their own image, what yes. people are perceiving them. Very common now, in religious families, sure, especially Christian. Right, and now, now it's going to be pushed down on the kids, like you have to be this way, this is the way you have to be. Kids can't be expressive of themselves anymore. God's you know, watching. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, Carefully. Right, and now, you know, kids can't express themselves, parents are always putting them in their place. Yeah. Uh, if they're doing something wrong, you're not listening to me, or you're going to be punished by God, like Sarah, you're going to get you're going to get punished, you're going to hit. Yeah. It's a huge, huge problem in the development of children and finding themselves. And you and I talked about this on the podcast we just did, on my yeah. podcast. Like, how does somebody find themselves? How do they find the meaning in their life? How do they find who they are and what brings them ultimate fulfillment? Well, one way I can tell you certainly isn't is when your parents are constantly smacking you down when you think you're doing something that's going to make you feel better. It's bringing, bringing you back down because you're told, don't do that. That's not the way you get love in this world. And then literally just beating it out of you, right? Yeah. If you're constantly getting reprimanded for doing things that are, um, you know, not acceptable, quote unquote, to your parents or to your, in, in your cultural, um, group, then you're just not going to do them anymore, right? The yeah. personalities we develop are not necessarily our own. It's the ones that get us love in, in society, yes. which is terrible. Did you know that back pain is the third most common reason for visits to the doctor's office? And even though most people recover pretty quickly, over a third experience it repeatedly. The thing is, most cases of back pain are not caused by serious conditions like inflammatory arthritis, infection, fracture or cancer. And that means the vast majority of cases are preventable with smart training. It's this exact realization that led Paul to create scientific back training. Scientific back training is the most comprehensive online training program out there on how to condition and rehabilitate the back. In over 18 hours of online training, you'll learn functional anatomy of the torso, extremities and inner and outer unit. You'll learn how stabilization takes place in the back and why stabilization is so important. You'll learn how to apply joint range of motion assessments and how joint restrictions can affect the squat technique. There's also included a comprehensive holistic program for prevention and resolution of back pain, as well as stretching and exercise selection techniques for back pain rehabilitation and prevention. And this month, Living 4D with Paul Check listeners will be able to learn all that scientific back training offers at a special 15% discount. Get your copy online now at checkinstitute.com forward slash SBT. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash SBT. Enter L4D back when you check out to receive your 15% discount. Thanks for listening. And now here's more from Paul and Ben Pakalski. It's sad. But as we'll see, it's got a strange, in, in, incredibly strange twist to it. Always. You know, the, uh, I've always told my students and my patients, God has the most incredible sense of humor. Mm-hmm. But you have to be brave enough to hang around for the punchline. <laughs> yes. yeah. Which means sometimes you got to work through shit to get there. And I talk about that, or I, sorry, I don't talk about that, but I think about that with my kids. It's yeah. like, how, how much did that you know, whomever saying you'll never amount to something 
actually play into my success. Yeah, so a and, lot, I'm sure. Yeah, and I always wonder, like, at what level do you just let it ride? I mean, like, not I'm not me influence them, not like that, but like as a parent, you're always trying to shelter them. You're like, I don't want them to be around negative people. I don't want them yeah. to be around. You know, I kind of want to curate who, who, what they read, what they see, what they watch. Who well, they talk that to. T- today is important with the digital age and sure. the access to too much information because that can fry a kid's mind. And you know, the science of brainwashing is well established. And mm-hmm. uh, phones and computers are excellent brainwashing tools. So, I think there's a certain level of uh, filtration sure. that to to protect them. Uh, but eventually, you know, that we all come in contact with everything, right? But if you have good habits in place and, and kids have a good sense of connection to mom and dad, you know, I think one of the most important things for parents to understand is that you should never make it scarier to tell the truth than it is to tell a lie. Yeah. Or your kids can never tell you what's really going on inside of them because the fear of the pain of being honest is worse than the guilt of lying. Yep. And so really a lot of kids have to learn to lie to survive their parents, but that sets them up for a way of relating with the world that just leads to all sorts of problems in all levels of relationships. Yeah, that's the only rule in my house is if you lie, the punishment's very, very big. And if you tell the truth, I'm usually pretty lenient, right? Yeah. Like, I want you to come and tell me. I want you to feel confident to come and tell me something. So my kids are very good now with, um, no matter what they did, I always say like, you're on, I'm on your team, right? Yeah. Like, my goal is to make you better. My goal is to teach you. If you're lying to me, now you're on a different team, and now I have to come and oppose you, and now you're on my opposition, right? Yeah. So that analogy tends to work with my kids. Like, you're on my team or you're on the other team, you know? If you're going to lie to me, you're on someone else's team, and then I'm going to come come at you oppositionally. Whereas if you're on my team, you're telling me the truth, and I'm going to support you to get better, right? That's how teams work. Yes. And um, so that, I mean, may not work for everybody, but that seems to work well for me. I think it's a good strategy, I tell parents, they say, well, you know, how should I handle myself in such and such situation or whatever? And I say, look, this is what I learned the hard way, right? My first son's going to be 40 this summer. I got a three-year-old now and a new one on the way. So I'm kind of living a second life. And it's great because I'm ready to be a parent now. Right. You're very young with... with, uh, Yeah, he was born when I just... Two weeks before I turned... Or two weeks after I turned 18, he was born. So, um, you know, now I'm... I have enough life experience and wisdom to realize how important it is to really make a kid the focus, right? That's, you got one shot at it. But what I tell people is a very simple formula I worked out the hard way. Whatever challenge you're dealing with your kid, just ask yourself this question. How do I want my child to handle this situation when they're an adult? Right, you're teaching them. So if it's an argument with another kid on this playground and you tell them just beat the shit out of them, then that's how they're going to handle it when they're 20 and 30 and they'll end up in jail, Mm -hmm. right? If it's something to do with stealing, then teach them how to handle it. Handle it yourself exactly the way you want them to see it done. If you think the kids aren't watching when you're cheating on your husband and they don't aren't hip to your little games they're usually way more hip than than you are <laughs> so yeah. there's there's a subtle realization that needs to happen there though right is we we you and I take it for granted that parents have or any humans have some subtle level of consciousness yes but unfortunately isn't the reality with our culture right so we have to yeah, yeah like being aware of how you react and respond and act, and talk and act is 
you know, that's the thing that if we could change that in the world, we would make the world a better place. And that's just part of our own healing, right? That that all boils down to us healing. We're either, you know, Carl Jung says all children are tasked with the unfinished lives of their parents. So whatever they didn't finish growing, whatever wherever they didn't mature, wherever they didn't live honest. So much truth in that. Yeah. Wherever they didn't fulfill their dreams, wherever they didn't uh, wow. take responsibility and become a citizen, right? A real contributing citizen. Whatever it is, the kids have to carry the ball from there. Wow. That's, wow. I've never heard that before. Well, Jung was very, very deep, you know. As you can see, I've studied him the extensively. Entire library. Yeah, and, and he's, a, he's a lifetime of study. Um, so, Ben, through all this, have you observed that our painful starts, trials, and tribulations, and even unfortunate experiences in childhood and early life, in retrospect, can turn out to be just what we needed to ignite something within us that leads us to becoming something greater than we, than we might have been if we had a normal family development. Paul, the smallest things that I look back on had the biggest impact in my life and they're burned into my memory. And and there's little things that I I used as, you know, fuel to the fire. And I I literally would take things that people said and I would say, thank you. And I would smile and I'd, you know, stash it away somewhere. I'd file it away somewhere in the memory bank. And that's what drove you know, that extra bit of cardio, that extra bit of training, that extra push well beyond where I thought I could go. And that's why I brought the condition I did. And that's why I brought the muscle that I did. And, you know, that's what allowed me to succeed as a bodybuilder was absolutely the pain, right? It was mm-hmm. the, you know, trying to prove, it started off as, as trying to prove something to my dad. Yeah. And then, then it went into maybe trying to prove something to every, you know, everyone around me, you know, to yeah. my, my saying was always two middle fingers to the world. I'll do it myself. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, the the people on the way are like, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, you know, I always say you can't do that. I'll do it twice. Yes. Um, I really do believe that it is important. Now, I wish, I hope, maybe you have the answer that there's some psychologist out there who is starting to quantify this stuff, right? Like, at what level, or, or maybe how could we create the same result, the same internal drive? Yeah without the negative psychological repercussions or is it just a necessary part of uh, avoidance right like you yeah. know we have, we have an innate human desire to avoid pain and avoid failure i think yeah so is there um, is there some way to achieve that without having to to inflict psychological damage on people well i think there is uh, it's it's sort of a uh, one of these slippery slope paradox type situations um you know, I, I shared Edward Edinger's definition of consciousness in our podcast for your podcast. I'll share it again for the listeners, and I've, I've used it before, but I think it's one of the most important definitions of consciousness out there. Consciousness is a psychic substance produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. So, you know, if we imagine an ideal parenting scene, the parents would create a fairly uh, stable environment, which means the polarities are not strong. Therefore, consciousness isn't going to grow as fast because we become conscious of differences. We become conscious of pain. And all of a sudden, if we're lifting and we hurt ourselves, say deadlifting or squatting, then we have to start asking, okay, what happened? Or you go to a therapist and they say, well, let me watch you 
do this exercise. Oh, well, your back's way too rounded or whatever. So all of a sudden we learn because we got hurt that now we must be more conscious of how we're doing that. And that gives us more consciousness. But if, if our parents are creating a state of equanimity and harmony all the time, you know, let's just use the analogy. Let's say that the parents are like the ocean and the kids are like uh, kayakers. If the ocean never has any waves, they don't really learn to master the ocean because there's no such thing as an ocean that doesn't have big waves now and right. then. So there, there is this need, and, and, and there's a lot if you look at uh, the spiritual literature or Buddhism and many people like Jack Kornfield and, and many of the great Buddhist teachers, the Dalai Lama, that many of them go into the, shall we say, the necessity of pain to stimulate us to become more aware and more conscious of ourselves, how we manage ourselves, what we say, what we do in relationship to ourselves and others. So pain actually is a hard thing to avoid in, in sense. Then this gets into a deep philosophical situation where we have to say, okay, what's life here for? What's human life for, for example? Um, I don't think lions and bears are really worried about you know, reaching a certain level of Buddhahood, they're just bearing and lioning and squirreling and, you know, coyoteing and being, right? But it seems to me that when you get to the human being, there's this innate quest for what created me, what created the world, what created the universe. We get to the point where we have enough brain power to keep asking deeper and deeper questions. So there is a an urge to grow into these invisible areas, right? And that's what religion is. It's really the pursuit of who am I and what is this, whatever it is that's behind all this, which requires a progressively higher level of consciousness because your level of consciousness determines the magnitude, the depth, and the quality of the questions you can ask on any topic, right? As a professional bodybuilder, if you were interviewing another professional bodybuilder, you have the experience to ask the most challenging, most riveting, most pinpointed questions. But some 15-year-old that reads muscle magazines isn't going to have a clue what sure. to begin to ask because you've achieved a high level of consciousness, right? So scientists meditate to get answers to deep questions. And you look at like Einstein would, would meditate in the bathtub. He would sit there in the bathtub and go into deep thought on all the deep questions he had about the universe. And most of their answers arrive as intuition. So you see that there's this something driving us to always grow our sense of understanding so that we can create a deeper sense of meaning, right? When we don't, when we have questions that are not answered, it leaves us searching for meaning. Mm -hmm. Like when a kid's told in church, God will burn you in hell for almost everything that's natural to you, <laughs> the music you listen to, the clothes you wear, the kind of sex you want to have, who you date, if you have sex before you're married, and the list is very, very long, so you're pitted up against your instincts all the time, which produces a lot of pain, which then makes you conscious, but you get to the point where you have to say, wait a minute, this does not sound very loving to me. It doesn't sound very godly to me. If God is God, then God already has everything. Why does he need to control me? Right. So you see that as you get more conscious, you start actually questioning your own beliefs, and then you question the beliefs of others, and then you say, well, wait a minute, I have to find a better 
explanation or it doesn't have any meaning. I can't go beyond this meaningless story someone else told me and expected me to believe. And there's pain in there because if we don't like a God that's an angry God that has no sense of humor and has very shitty ideas about good sex right. and is very boring, then we have to figure out how do we push ourselves through the envelope. And so though that there's this – so what I'm saying when you look at the definition of conscious, conscious is a psychic substance produced not blindly. You have got to be aware. You and I were just stacking rocks together, which is, as, as you know, very dangerous. You you go out there stoned and not paying attention or you think you're a superhero who can just throw those stones around like weights in the gym, you can end up dead. So the awareness of pain, even picking the stones up, as you can find, can cut your hands open. There's insects that'll bite you. you, you there's enough pain generators out there to make you very, very conscious. And so paradoxically, you get so conscious about what you're doing that eventually you learn to relax because you can't be conscious enough if you're just trying to analyze details. Like, is my technique right? You, you're just focused on that, but you've got to be focused on what's around you and who else is around you. So you paradoxically get pushed into the situation where you actually find that by relaxing, and staying present, you can get more consciousness in because your filtration system's not so jacked up, right? You're more in this open state of awareness. And so there's this perpetual desire to grow. But when we're talking about raising kids, there's this point at which life is, is painful enough, right? We're, we're, it certainly we're, can be, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're all going to have... The, the experience of getting poor grades at some point, or maybe not all of us, but most of us will. Some of us might get great grades and, and we think we're beautiful, but someone tells us that we're ugly. And if you look at all the ways that we get leveled out in the field of life, I think there's a, a fair bit of consciousness elevation opportunities out there. But as a parent, I think it's it's, it takes a really mature person. Now, I didn't have this maturity with my first son. I was a hardcore soldier. I was a martial artist. I was, you know, everything for me was go, 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 kill, 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 win, 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 do anything you got to do to win. And, and as a paratrooper, it's a very intense environment that you're in all day. And you come home and you're just all jacked up and you're constantly getting reprimanded or critiqued or whatever. And so the, the part... The, the sad part of it is, is a family is a stress attenuation system. We usually aren't afraid to fart at the dinner table or tell someone what we really think or uh, everyone in the house has seen us cry before, so you can't hide that. So when you come home to your family, the paradox is you share your pain, but you also pass your pain on because our family becomes a buffering system. There's many things we do with our brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers, aunts, uncles, cousins that we would never do in public because we know that they're our family and somehow they're going to deal with it. Yeah. So you see there's, way to look at it. there's an attenuation system yeah. there. Just like if you have a bicycle wheel with 32 spokes, no matter which part of the wheel hits the curb, the force is attenuated through the wheel and it's divided by 32. 
So our family is like spokes in the wheel. But if our family doesn't attenuate the stress effectively and puts more stress back on us, eventually the rim breaks metaphorically. And then we get into drugs or compensations and ways to do it. So I think part of the problem is we don't have effective parenting systems. We don't, we lost our tribal elders. We don't have wise older people, right? In our culture today, we have old people that are out running and getting boob jobs and facelifts and buying their second Corvette and trying to pretend they're still sure. 25 or 30. And so there's, there's, their level of consciousness is really like a perpetual teenage type experience. Absolutely. So there's really hardly anybody leading parents into the wisdom of being a parent. And in tribal societies, if you read the book Metabolic Man 10,000 Years from Eden by Charles Heiser Worthen, he shows you through comprehensive studies that the average hunter-gatherer society could do all the work it needed to do to feed itself within about the first three and a half to four hours of the day. And while the parents were out doing the hunting and hunting and gathering, the grandparents, the elders, were educating the children through song, through dance, through play, through story, through crafts, through things that engaged them, and they had fun learning, and there wasn't writing stuff down, and there wasn't tests. The, the test was life itself. Exactly. So they got to learn from the wisest, most mature, most empathetic per people in the tribe Who that had been knew, through it. Yeah. yeah, and they knew the importance of not damaging children and, and how important they were to the success of the tribe and the mm-hmm. future of the tribe. I think now, I mean, you'd probably agree with this, I feel as though the current level, the current parents are maybe more mature and more advanced than grandparents. Like, I don't want to put my kids with my parents. Yeah. Uh, certainly, right? They're, they're certainly not going to be wise elders. Yeah. So I think our culture, our, our society is dealing with this issue of this generational um, gap, right? Yeah. Like, this, these people just aren't, maybe it's the 60s and 70s, like, during that generation of when, you know, or earlier than that, obviously, um, there's a unique niche of people coming out of that state that just aren't set to lead a generation of young adults or young children, right? Yeah. So it's a it could just be a generational thing because I'm certain in the past, you know, there, that's been a great solution to have the elders that are very wise and they're going to lead and they're going to teach and make great, you know, offspring. Yeah. Well, you know, a tribal environment is very different because the elders of a tribe, you know, most tribes were, were not based on systems of monogamy. So, right. you know, you had... Uh, a man could have kids from three different women, women, and a woman could have kids from three different men easily. So the tribe was really more right. everybody. We like we're all brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. and and you know if mom and dad were away, then your other mom and dads are the ones in the tent right next to you. So we don't didn't have this kind of monogamy based territorialistic. My yard, my kid, don't touch. It was more like. Everybody was your brother and sister. Everyone's your cousin. Everyone's your uncle. Everyone's your grandpa and your grandma, depending on how old they were and how wise they were. But we've lost all that. And that that is, you know, unfortunately, there's religious underpinnings to that. There's also, if you study Ken Wilber's work, once we started agriculture and we started fencing off fields, we became a patriarchal society. This is my land, not yours. Stay the fuck out of here or I'll shoot you. And so what happened is, then you have the religious influence of monogamy until death do you part and you know everything anything else is 
you know, get you in lots of trouble, get you killed even. So we broke that, we broke the, the essential bond that attenuated the force and had consciousness flow through the wheel of the tribal family. And now it's just got a lot less spokes in the wheel and it's broken up into pieces and it just isn't rolling very well. Um, but we but we have all this money now. We have all this technology. So and we and we, and we have all this fake food, right? So we got ba- ba- gazillion uh, acres full of grain, enough to feed us for the next ten years without farming a day. But it's all junk food, right? So the point is, is that what we gained was a sense of power, control, and territory, and the illusion of safety. But what we lost was what it takes to raise a child to be a healthy human being and a contributor to the world at a level that they can contribute at when they're raised with love and effective guidance. What do you think a parent should be doing to um, at least try to facilitate the increased consciousness of a child? If it's not creating this polarizing environment, is it just creating a safe environment? I think it's creating a safe environment. It's uh, allowing children to have the bumps and the scrapes that are necessary. You can't protect a kid from falling off a bicycle. You can't protect a kid from falling off a horse. Uh, you know, you can't protect a kid from stepping on a nail when they're out playing. Uh, you, you know, what you do, in my opinion, is you give them the awareness that they need, but know that they aren't going to, you know, any child that's got a spirit of any significance is always going to push the boundaries because that's in their genes. Good. They ha- the apple has to walk away from the tree or yeah. evolution stops. Yep. You know, like, you know, my, my parents didn't drink much, but they did keep a bottle of wine on hand. And one of my buddies liked to drink. So I knew that there was at least one bottle of wine. I just figured out how I could steal it without getting caught. Now, to steal a bottle of wine in my house could have got you a broken arm. But what I'm pointing to is my genes said, well, I've got to outsmart my dad, particularly, and my mom. So what I did is I got a razor blade, carefully cut the aluminum foil around you know, the neck of the bottle where they got foil over top of it, cut it with a razor-thin slice, undid that, carefully pulled the cork out, poured the wine out, got some red food dye, which my mother had, put water in it, put food dye in it, and very carefully reassembled it, and it sat in that shelf for about two years until... Until someone went to drink until it. Until the shocking day, and I had forgotten about it until my parents invited the neighbors over for dinner one time, and it was like Thanksgiving or something, and my dad goes, oh, I've got a bottle of wine I've been saving for years. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Get out now. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad pours, you know, the smelling and the tasting in this. My dad smells, this is something off about this. He tastes, <laughs> he spits it out. And he, he immediately assumed it was my brother, Scott, who, who's the one that later committed suicide because he was the bad boy of the house you know always fighting with my dad and going against all the rules and didn't care how badly beat up he got he just wanted to make sure he got his way and so my dad looked at scott right away and he said get the hell outside which means you're about to get the shit beat out of you 
And I'm like, I can't let this happen, man. So <laughs> my dad was embarrassed, right? Because he's got a bottle of color water. <laughs> and I'm like, shit. I should have replaced. I kept telling myself, I got to replace the bottle. I got to go get someone to buy me a bottle of wine because right. I'm only like 13 or 14, right? And so we used to go hang out at the liquor store and wait for some, you know, 19-year-old or whatever that would buy us some wine. And so my dad's out there and he's got my brother by the neck and he's about to punch him in the face. And I yelled, don't do it. I did it. And it was interesting. It was one of the interesting experiences of my life. My dad let go of me. He looked at me. He said, you did that? And I said, yeah, I was going to replace it. But I said, I just forgot. And I kept telling myself, and it's not easy for me to get wine. I have to find someone that will buy it. It could take me half a day to do that. I said, me and my buddy Brent drank it, and we snuck off to the movie because there was a drive-in movie theater about a half a mile away. So we'd hike through the woods at night and risk the cougars and the bears, and we would sit there and unplug one of the you know the things you hang off your window at the drive-in movie mm-hmm. theater, and we would turn it on, sit outside, and drink the wine, get drunk, and watch a movie for free, <laughs> and then hike home. And we had to sneak back into my window. They always thought we were in bed, and so I told my dad what happened, and it was one of the wildest experiences I ever had because he looked at me he goes I'm really impressed that you told me the truth to save your brother and he said make sure that wine gets replaced and he walked in in the house told his friend what happened giggled about it nobody got beat up and so it was one of those kind of strange moments in my life where telling the truth actually turned out to be a safer bet wow but uh so Anyhow, you know, we were we were kind of talking about um, how these challenges can actually turn out to to be gifts, and I think with regard to your question, is it's really it takes a lot of presence from a parent because there's a lot of deep thinking. How much is too much? Too much warning? Too much reprimanding? Too much punishment? And how much is not enough? And this really is an issue because if you're working too much and you don't have time to be with yourself or meditate or you don't have a spiritual practice or you don't have a place where there's wise elders, like, you know, in in the Self-Realization Fellowship, my mother could go talk to the monks about these things and get really wise counsel. But most people go to a typical church and get some spare the rod and spoil the child type discussion and then they go home and just beat the shit out of the kids and i've seen it happen thousands of times and i've rehabilitated too many people to remember that it got ruined through this so what i'm saying is each parent has to find that that very special point and one of the things that if you study like hazrat inyat khan who's got a fair bit about teaching or you study a, a, a an integral psychologist like Keith Witt, or you look at Dr. Daniel Siegel's teachings, one of the themes that keeps coming out is make sure no matter what you do, you stay connected to the child from your heart and they know that you love them, that you're doing it because you love them. And even though they don't understand it, at some level of their being, they feel the connection. But if you disconnect from the child and you give the child the sense that it's now not part of the family and that it's not loved and it's some kind of 
hoodlum or some kind of a second-class citizen, that's when you damage the child in ways that may take a lifetime to fix. So if I had any advice, and I've had to learn this the hard way, it's stay connected. Look the child in the eyes. Mon is only three, but he is a fireball. And sometimes he gets right out of hand and he's learned to control the whole house and you know how it goes. And so I will take him out and part of me wants to just whack him and say, damn it, quit all this bullshit. You're driving everyone crazy. But I found if I just look him in the eyes and say, Mana, daddy wants to help you. What do you need? What do you need? And just talk to him. And I take him out of the house so he can't get access to everything that's distracting him from toys to whatever's going on. And it's often, you know, cool at night. And he's like, Daddy, I want to go in the house. I'm saying, you just have to listen to me. We have to talk before you go back in the house. But I've been blown away, even at three years old, if I stay right connected to him and look him in the eyes and don't raise my voice at him, but just talk to him, oftentimes he'll calm down. Mm -hmm. And I remember being young and, and my brother, you know, my brother would, uh, m- me too, but my brother was worse. He would he would not calm down because nobody really did that with us. It was just, you get more whippings. You talk again, you get smacked. If the strap doesn't work, it's a wooden spoon. If that doesn't work, it's the horse whip. If that doesn't work, it's a punch in the face. If that doesn't work, well, it's the hospital. And, and I've seen it escalate to that level enough times <clears throat> to know why my brother killed himself. But so it, it is a very, very fine line. But look, what's more important than our kids? Nothing. And so one thing I did that was very effective for me um, as far as helping my kids um, understand some of these situations, like kids are going to get it at hand, right? Like we want, I almost encourage it. I'm like, don't listen to me. I want you to, to do what you want to do. Be free. Yeah. Um, but one thing I started implementing, and, and this is, you know, um, very much in line with this idea of being conscious is, um, every morning when, we, when they wake up, from the time they were two, maybe younger, I'd, I'd sit them on my lap and we'd do we'd breathe, mm-hmm. so they could feel me breathing with yeah. them. Um, so we would just make them do you know as many breaths it took for them to like settle down. And you know I always call it five breaths, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's fifty, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's ten, but as many as it takes to calm them down. And I want them to feel what it feels like to be still, and I want them to feel like what it feels like to have a deep, relaxed breath and be able to keep their eyes closed and not fidget. And now anytime they're getting a hand or they're um, misbehaving or they're, they're, you know, being a little overzealous, I'll just say, hey, go sit over there and do five breaths. And that's it. So that's their, you know, timeout almost, right? So rather, so now instead of giving them a, um external coping strategy. I'm giving them an internal coping strategy. Yeah. So, you know, many parents are like, here, take this iPad, take this chocolate bar. This is going to yeah. calm you down. Yeah. Um, Eat just some to, sugar to calm you down. Well, that, that's what it is, right? It's giving you some external thing to make yeah. you feel better. It's make a pacifier. You, right. Um, versus like, hey, five breaths. Now, it's, it's the best way to diffuse the situation, right? Yeah. It's just teaching them to go inside of yourself, feet like I'm, you know, I walk them through like the, the, the progressive muscle relaxation stuff. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, contract these muscles and relax. Just mm-hmm. feel your hand, your face relax, your neck relax. And it's the best way to diffuse any situation, no matter where they are. I'm like, hey, you go in your room and you do five breaths and you go over there, you do five breaths, everything's gone, right? Yeah. And then I'll come and talk to them after that. And it's it's a good passive way yeah. to diffuse a situation. And it lets them have an internal coping strategy because so many people become addicted to drugs and food and, and other things because they don't have a coping mechanism when things get stressful. 
right? Nobody ever said, hey, just learn how to control your breath. And then we just bring down the tone of the autonomic nervous system and everybody seems to hopefully be happy, right? Yeah, it's good. Um, since Mana was a baby, you know, Angie and Penny and I would go out and do Tai Chi in my Tai Chi circle at home. So from, from the beginning of his life, he's felt, uh, you know, breathing squats oh, wow. and various Tai Chi moves. And, and so I, I remember the first time when he had just was, he was pretty good at walking. It was like with some stone steps, you got to go down into my front yard where my water charger is. And I would have to help him down so he didn't fall and crack his head open or something. But one time I was down there with him and I was, I'd just taken a water bottle out, put the other one and closed the door. And I started walking away and he points to the Tai Chi circle. He goes, daddy, Tai Chi. He's like, you haven't done your Tai Chi. <laughs> I said, oh, you want to do some Tai Chi? So he would come in the circle and he had learned what a breathing squat was. So here's this little tiny guy, you know, who's just learning to walk and he's only has a couple of words, but he knew what Tai Chi was. And he's Beautiful. like, daddy, Tai Chi. And so it, it just goes to show you that these little things, if you imprint them and you make it uh, so it's not like associated with pain all the time, you mm -hmm. know, in other words, if you wait till the kid's in a temper tantrum to try to give them the five breaths, then it's just another exactly. thing you're telling them to do. And yep. it's like, ah, but if they realize that it's coming because you're, you're loving them and saying, this is how we calm ourselves down. Yeah. You know, like monkeys go have sex. We can go breathe. Right. You know, but yeah, there, there's, it's really does take some creativity, doesn't it? Yeah. It's completely situational, right? So, you know, yeah. certain things work for my son, not for my daughter and everybody's very, very different. Yeah. Well, having achieved such a uh, high level of success in bodybuilding, um, a sport that requires total commitment to focus to one specific outcome, what are some of the key attributes such as discipline, focus, listening to feedback, commitment, overcoming adversity, etc., you've developed that you share with others through your work today so they can achieve their dreams and physical or athletic goals. So when you when you take those sure. qualities you had to have, sure, I think the biggest thing that was an advantage for me was I was always my own worst critic. Right, I was in a blessing and a curse of life. Is you know everything I looked at, I was looking at with an extremely critical eye, and I was always very analytical on like how can I be better. And it was it was keeping a world class standard. Right, is mm -hmm. from the time I was seventeen years old, I went to the first Mr. Olympia I'd ever been to. I wasn't even a bodybuilder; I was one hundred and sixty pounds. And I was like, you know, this is what I want to do. And that's the standard. And I was able to set that in my mind very young. And some people have a very low standard for themselves, right? Some people mm -hmm. are like, oh, I just want to get stronger. Or I just want to, you know, I, I don't think I have the genetics to X, Y, and Z. Or I don't think mm -hmm. I have the resources, the time, the money, whatever it is. And they make this excuse around why they can't succeed. And that's the same in everything in business. Well, I just want to have a good, like, you know, small business that makes a few extra bucks. Well, good luck, right? You're going to fall short because it's not something that really um, pulls you. So my yeah. goal was so big. Like my, my, I was like, I saw the best bodybuilder in the world for it to me at that time. It was, you know, Dorian Yates, it was Flex Wheeler. And I was like, until I look like that, I'm not where I want to be. So I myopically focused on those goals. And I think um, once you have a vision and a mission that's pulling you, right, it's this, it's so big that until I get there, I don't feel like I've accomplished it. It was really easy for me to be motivated. It was easy for me to get out of bed at four in the morning or five in the morning and do the two and three workouts a day. It was very easy for me to work harder than everybody else because I knew my standard was so much higher. And even when people started saying, man, you look great. Like, are you, do you want to get bigger than this? 
I was like, until I look like that, I'm not there. So I had to set this very, very specific target. I think it's just this simple uh, understanding that anyone who's successful in anything has a goal. They have a target and they create an action plan, right? It's like, okay, where do I want to be? I want to make $100 million. Okay, well, how do I do that? Right, Create an action plan. And And who's done it? Right. So I can go learn learn? from them. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. And I literally, so unfortunately in bodybuilding, maybe fortunately, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of great role models, right? And that's not to to knock anybody, but there was nobody who I found was – um, you know, a great education source as far yeah. as like how to do it, the yeah. tactics of in-gym training, the tactics of nutrition, and also <clears> being <throat> a good role model as far as a human being. Um, and it just didn't seem like they existed. So I just started kind of picking and choosing information. And I was like, well, this guy's good for this and this guy's good for that. And that's when I first found your stuff, to be honest, like oh, a, lot of, cool. a lot of movement stuff. Um, and I just started kind of picking role models in different genres. And I was like, you know what? Hopefully one day I can become the role model for these guys that can teach them nutrition, that can teach them training, that can teach them how to be a great man, that can teach them some spiritual stuff, you know, how, yeah. to, how to fuel their soul. Um, and that's kind of where I am now, you know, having left bodybuilding early on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to be a great resource for every young man, whether you be 15 or 25 or 35 or 55. And the young women too, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I guess I just relate to men because that was me. But yeah, certainly young women who want to just become the best version of themselves. Maybe they're overcoming something and having to deal with something, but yeah. giving them an actual path, giving them a strategy, giving them some tactics to actually accelerate the journey to, to remove all of the dumb things that we do that, you know, we pay for it when we're older, right? The things I did between 17 and 24 are still causing me problems because of mm. just the mindless approach that I took to, to building my body was just like, I'm just going to work harder, mm-hmm. you know, and running, running, running faster and faster in the wrong direction. is not going to get you where you want to no, go. Yeah. It's learning. You got to learn to kind of set your targets first, set this, set the sales first, and then make sure you're pointed in the right direction. Then you drop the hammer down. And, uh, that's kind of what I've, you know, cut my teeth at in my business now is, um, I'm teaching people, teaching people how to build muscle for their body, like teaching you what actually works for you because yeah. realizing everyone's structurally different. And I think if you empower every child, you know, a child, but young adult, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old with the belief and the self-confidence that they can build their body, I think you eliminate a lot of problems, like a lot of psychological issues, a lot of uh, lack of confidence, maybe eating disorders, and actually empower them with the skill set that, hey, like if you do these things, you can build your body. You may choose not to, but at least you have the power to do it. Whereas a lot of kids now are, and taking steroids very young, they're bullying, right? What's bullying? It's just insecurity. So if we give them this, this um, confidence and empower them with the knowledge and, and the skill set to build a great body, I think it could be a very p- empowering scenario for our teenage, you know, youth. Yeah. One of the um, interesting things, uh, having studied countless thousands of scientific uh, papers on weightlifting and resistance training of you know for everything from medical exercise to athletics one of the things that comes out of research into women when they lift weights is that pretty much consistently across the board they find that it increases their sense of autonomy yeah so they become more self-actuated and more um able to stand their own two shoes and not let people push them off their path or out of their center because they have a sense of being someone they're they're not you know, a pushover anymore. And of course that's, that's uh, the truth with young men as well. And anybody that starts lifting weights and comes from a position of being weak and not able to, to uh, feel safe in themselves or to accomplish their goals. But I think it's a very important point for parents and for women to realize that weightlifting really does enhance your sense of 
I am somebody. I can I can get things out of the way. I can put I can build things. I can make something happen in my life. Right. And one thing that I do that's very unique compared to most people is most people go to the gym and they train to disconnect from their body, right? They're mindless. They're doing things to, uh, you know, mute out the noise in their mind. And the way I approach it is I'm actually using um, training to be more conscious as a, as a opportunity to be present, to be mindful, kind of like when we're lifting rocks, right? Yeah. Well, how do you take training, your typical weightlifting, and turn it into that where you have to now pay attention to positions in your body, you have to pay attention to muscle lengths, like what muscle is moving, and teaching people to become more present in the moment. So I use it as this opportunity for everybody to become more conscious and more present in the moment because if you really want to build a great body, being present is going to accelerate that, right? Yeah. I need to pay attention to what's moving, what's contracting, what's doing the work, where do I feel this, mm-hmm. how am I doing this? Like there's a lot of little intricate questions yeah. you can be asking yourself to actually make you more present in the moment. You know, my training is meditative. It's, you know, my eyes closed, my eyes are closed. I'm paying attention to my breath. I'm paying attention to my contraction. What's, where do I feel it? Am I feeling in the right place? Um, and then between sets, it's again going back into the parasympathetic breath, right? So mm-hmm. like how can I get myself out of that massive sympathetic state and go to the parasympathetic breath so I calm down? Now my perceived effort is much less and now that's, I can do more work. That's why I developed the whole concept of working in. Mm-hmm. Because when you work in, when you control your breathing and you harmonize your biological oscillators, you go into an anabolic state. Exactly. So what happens is you decrease the amount of sympathetic push that you're getting, which yep. has a, the effect, the net effect of decreasing the overall stress on your mind and your body. Yep. So, you know, people like Mike Salemi and many other great yeah. athletes are people that I've taught how to use those techniques on their rest periods and in between workouts specifically to enhance anabolic recovery, speed recovery. Uh, strength development, muscle mass development. This is uh, we're talking the same language when it comes to that stuff. Like when I switch, when I started doing that, I could do the things I was doing during my career, and my perceived effort is a fraction. Like I'll train with guys that I was training with during my career, and I don't even break a sweat. I won't be out of breath, and I'm doing the same things there and more relative, you know, to the same amount that I was doing during my career when I was much bigger and much stronger. Yeah, um, maybe not stronger, but I'm keeping up with my ability to do those same. Um, strength feats and and perceived effort is fractional. Yeah, I know, you know, as a guy who's been weightlifting since he was 12 years old, pretty nonstop and studied it from every angle you can imagine, because as a therapist, you have to know the anatomy in great detail. Um, But it's amazing how just the change of the angle of your forearm or your wrist can completely change the recruitment profile. Mm -hmm. Um, the change of the position of the foot, even half a centimeter can completely change how you recruit in a squat or a yep. deadlift. So there, there's quite a vista of, um, there's quite a vista of ways to enhance our awareness and deepen our connection with ourself. And especially athletes like gymnasts or martial artists or, uh, you know, wrestlers, people that have got to deal with not only good body control, but controlling somebody else's body, then there's so much to learn just in that experience that I think that if we love doing those athletic events, it inspires us to develop the depth of presence and awareness that ultimately turns out to be useful in everything we do from intimate relationships to parenting to managing and running a business, to uh, even learning how to relax when it's time to relax. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of people that don't know how to relax, I say, look, if you just go to the gym and give yourself a proper workout, your body will teach you how to relax. If your head can't do it, let your body (laughs) teach you how. Right. But just like with lifting stones, there's such a beautiful opportunity when you give yourself a big weight in your hand to like, hey, you need to pay attention or you're going to hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, and people don't see that opportunity. I think it's a huge waste to help everybody improve their consciousness. If you're going on a, you're a triathlete, if you're going on a, you know, a 30 mile run or a 26 mile run, you have to become present, right? Maybe, oh, yeah. at, maybe at points you block, you block it out, but mm. it's a really great opportunity to become present with the discomfort, become present with the pain mm-hmm. and appreciate that you're becoming a better person today, right? This is why I seek those things intentionally rather than uh, most people try to avoid the discomfort. Like, no, no, no. You do your cold shower every day. You do those things that are ultimately subjecting you to the opportunity to become more disciplined today. Yeah. So now I know that I can overcome anything, right? Building that self-confidence and that character because I'm intentionally seeking opportunities to make myself more disciplined. Yeah. You know, if I can't do something, I must. It's something I say all the time. Yeah, right? I, that's one of my slogans. If you can't, you must. Oh, funny. I was been saying that's great. Yeah. It's, yeah. you can see that all the way back into the nineties and in, in my earliest programs uh. where I talk about if you're analyzing someone's squat and they can't squat, the medical system says never make them squat. No, I say, whatever you can't do is what you must do. Cause yeah. that's exactly how you're going to get hurt. Right. Because you cannot avoid squatting. Try having a poop standing up. See how that works out sure. for you. And the, yeah, find the reason why you can't and, and then turn that into a strength, right? Rather than yeah. just get making it uh, adequate. That's the way I approached bodybuilding was like, find my weakest link and don't just make it, don't just do it enough to pass, mm-hmm. make it a strength, right? So if I see something holding me back, I'm going off to that with that, that tiger-like uh, vengeance, you know? Yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you think bodybuilding as a path offers that other sports typically don't from a perspective no, no of time athletic, off. athletic or personal development. Yeah, no. Well, so the big thing that, you know, separates, I, I, I don't take anything away from any athlete because I have such a massive appreciation for every athlete. But bodybuilding is 24 hours a day, right? You, yeah. there, there's no meals off. There's yeah. no missing sleep. And um, so there's a really a huge amount of commitment necessary, especially because you're just trying to do something so non-physiological, right? As you're trying to build muscle, which requires a caloric excess, mm-hmm. you're trying to lose fat, which yeah. is a caloric deficit. So it's non-physiological to do this stuff. So I think there's a unique uh, consciousness, a unique presence that has to be there, other than obviously the genetics and the drugs, which takes away a lot of that opportunity. Uh, I think the there's a really unique opportunity there to do something that is just extremely extremely challenging it takes a lot of attention to detail it takes a lot of um discipline and just this idea of like as i as i get closer to the show most people are working more and more and more and eating less and less and less and that just requires so much self-control so much discipline i know that from boxing and yeah martial arts training it's that's it's a hard road baby yeah and I, i suggest so i have kind of polarizing views on this like to be honest, I suggest most women never compete because yeah. it destroys your uh, relationship with system. food, it <laughs> destroys your hormonal system, it does all those things. But I also suggest that every human being at some point in their life strongly restricts their food mm-hmm. because learning to have an appreciation for food yeah. is one of the I think greatest it's things. One of the greatest things I learned from bodybuilding is like the, the beauty of the natural flavors that exist in food when you're actually deprived, mm-hmm. you know, deprive yourself for a while and, and see, yeah. you know, what it feels like to actually 
deprive yourself of water, which you'll get as a boxer trying to make weight. Like Mm -hmm. if you're dehydrated and you're deprived yourself of water, water is the most amazing thing in the world. And it just improves that, that gratitude, that appreciation for everything. I mean, I remember taking a bite of a, of a white potato or a sweet potato or, or, you know, uh, anything when I was competing and Practically I was like, get you high. Oh, it was just like orgasmic, right? Like yeah. people use, I used to, my, my treat when I was dieting used to drink apple cider vinegar and people go, are you out of your mind? I go, this is like, I look forward to this. Mm. <laughs> like you have no idea what it's like to really deprive yourself of something. And I think everyone should experience that. Well, fortunately for me, one of my father's punishments was no food. Yeah. So, okay, you don't get any dinner or you don't get lunch or you don't get lunch or dinner. So as a kid, I kind of learned what it was like to be hungry. I've Mm. had plenty of nights going to bed, just like my stomach, you know, plus we were doing a lot of hard work. So I learned that, but then boxing, boy, whoa, man. You know, my walking around weight was comfortably normally, and I wasn't fat. I was probably only 8% body fat when I was out of training, and I was 168 pounds. Like when I was a triathlete, I weighed 168. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine I'm doing a lot of training. But I fought at 147. So I had to come down very carefully because there wasn't a lot to lose. So I really had a very strategic system. But I remember I would give myself one grapefruit, sometimes a grapefruit and an orange. With When I was within two weeks of a fight, if I even thought about food, I would gain weight. But I would finish, I usually lose five to eight pounds in a workout just from all the sweat because we would weigh in and weigh out every workout. So I would see I was like dropping weight like crazy, but I couldn't drink a lot of water. I couldn't eat much, but after like five hours of boxing training and just leaving that place, just cooked all the time. I'm hitting the heavy bag and the speed bag and sparring. And I'm thinking, I've got that fucking grapefruit in my gym bag, man. (laughs) And it would be like... Sweetest thing in the world. It would be like, you know, the prince finding his princess, you know. And I would remember walking out of the gym in the hot sun in North Carolina on Fort Bragg, and I would peel this thing, and I practically wanted to eat the damn rind off Mm -hmm. the damn thing. But the experience of biting into that juicy, not too sweet, but just sweet enough. Just enough water and and moisture. Just enough moisture to keep you from cracking into a you know just a big callus that's cracked open Mm -hmm. but little things like that are they're really a a level of discipline and there's there's the pain that makes consciousness you see and there's inducing pain because we're doing something that we want to accomplish to make ourselves feel good not to impress mommy or daddy but to prove to the soul or the being or the spirit in us that we can be somebody, we can be bigger, we can be more, we can be faster, bigger, stronger, right. better, because that's what you do when you're young. You, you're, that's what a warrior has to do to become a warrior. You've got to learn to face adversity. Yep. And I think athletics and, and bodybuilding gives us a chance to choose to do that on our own, and then your heart's in it. Then you starve yourself to get down to fighting weight, or you lean yourself out out of love and passion for the sport and for the the adventure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there's certain medicine journeys like ayahuasca. There's certain dieting procedures you need to do. And if you don't, you go for a very, very bumpy ride. You might have a bumpy ride anyhow. But our culture has become so lost in instant gratification that I think that we're, we're really actually 
it's almost like there's a strata, there's a handful of people that are getting much more conscious and growing very rapidly spiritually. But for every one of them, there seems to be thousands that are just stuck on their iPhone eating junk food and don't have the discipline to do anything yep. to to grow themselves. And now we've got the medical system just drugging everything so they don't really have to experience the pain they're creating through being unconscious. Right. So we've created this kind of weird stratification, which is super dangerous. It's the same thing that happens in the financial world, right? You have yeah. you know one percent of the population that has ninety percent of the, the money. Like yes, it's just you just rise up. Yeah, uh, if you're willing to to work and be present and be conscious, you're going to separate yourself, and that's just I think the unfortunate reality of humanity. You know, it's some people are willing to endure it, and some people aren't. And I think if it, unfortunately, I don't know, if there's any way we could overcome it. Well, leadership. Maybe. And guys like... From a very young age. Well, you know, the thing is, look, people like you inspire a lot of people, right? There's a lot of young men that look at a body like that and go, oh my God, just like you did, I want to be that way. And they start reading your articles and listening to your podcasts. And I mean, I have lots of them that read my stuff. Yeah, and, for and, sure. You know, they say, okay, well, I've, I know I don't have to be in pain. I know I can get rid of my skin problems. I know I can do this or that. Right. And and that that's really what it takes. We've like we said, we've lost our tribal elders, but it's up to those of us that realize what's going on to devote ourselves to sharing a little something. You know, I do a blog every week, and that is my commitment to social work. My video blogs on YouTube. That is my contribution to society that I donate, I put the time, energy, and I spend the money to make that happen because that's me. I'd rather do that than drop five bucks in the hat going around the church. Right. Right? Manly P. Hall says, if you want to find a Mercedes Benz in any third world country, just look behind a Christian church. Mm -hmm. Point being, they're taking all the money from the poor people and decking the halls with gold and buying BMWs. Meanwhile, everyone's starving to death. But I put the my money in the hat goes into these interviews. I mm. pay for these podcasts myself. I don't have any sponsors yet. They, I'm, I'm investing a lot of money because that's how I'm contributing to the world. That's how you're contributing to the world. Yeah. And my education system, that's what it's for. And I try to divert people who come to me, you know, people who come at that young age and say, hey, you know, I want to be a professional bodybuilder. So I'll be like, well, here's the skills, tactics, and strategies to do that. But I also want you to be aware of the fact that this is not going to change the person you are, right? Because we, yeah. we have this belief of if I just build the muscle, the girls will like me. Or if I just build the muscle or get lean, you know, I'll feel confident. And it's all bullshit, man. It's not, you know, it's not the truth. Yeah. So I try to divert them to this reality of like, use the daily workout not as an escape but as an opportunity to become your best self as an opportunity to implement discipline and that's when people really start to change and that's the message i want to get out to people is the end result is bullshit like the end result is um just an expression of the work you put in if you put in enough work every single day you'll get there much faster so being present in the moment being present in your workout today being present with your with your spouse being present with your kids Whatever it is, that presence and giving your all to that moment is the only thing that matters. You know, yeah. that seems to be the message that needs to be conveyed to everybody because we're so also attached to what the vista is from the top of the mountain. It doesn't matter. Well, you know, yeah. it's, it's the steps you take along the way that are going to get you there, that are going to develop the person that you're trying to be. Yeah. And that's the message I want to convey to the young aspiring athletes and bodybuilders and, and everybody is, 
you know, be attached to doing your best today, being attached to working hard and, and implementing discipline, but not necessarily being attached to the outcome because the outcome always moves and it's not, it's not fulfilling, man. You make a hundred million bucks. Guess what? It's not going to change the person you are, right? You just it's, want it's, 110 million or 120 yeah. million or 150 million. Right. It's, it's the person you, know, you become in the process. Yourself. And, and you, wasted your life. And you wasted your life and yeah. your kids are spending their millions on psychotherapy. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> and true. And drugs. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to escape that. Yeah. Now, um, see, how old were you in 88? Seven. Seven. That's when I started traveling, lecturing professionally on the dangers of machine training. Ah. And that's I- when I unveiled my primal pattern movement system. I, I completely agree with you, right? And I teach this in my courses. There's, there's got to be an integration of isolation, which is machine training, yeah. and functional training, right? Yeah. So, you know, what, what's functional, which is like I need to integrate the way the body's meant to move and, yeah. and the integration of isolation, right? Yeah. You have to integrate those things. Otherwise, you create dis- dysfunction. I'm just curious. Do you know the history of bodybuilding and how it went from into a machine-based sport? And what it was before then? I think it was just Arthur Jones, was it not? Well, Arthur Jones was the kind of one of the key principles. But before that, in, interestingly, in the year I was born, a man named Vic Tanny, and this is back in the Jack LaLanne days era, became America's number one fitness trainer. I've got Wisdom Magazine 1961 on the shelf in there if you want to see it. And that was the beginning of the concept of machines, and that's when you got your universal machines, and that was where they designed gyms to run people from one door to the other door and make money off them and sell as many memberships as possible, hoping that people wouldn't come use the gym. Wow, nothing's and, changed. Yeah, so what happened is that started kicking off the, the what I call commercial gym era. But interestingly... If you go back, for, you know, you know, Eugene Sandow started the yeah. sport of bodybuilding. Yep. And back in those days, almost all the champion bodybuilders were Olympic weightlifters. And what they would, many of them would go right from competing in an Olympic competition on Saturday to a bodybuilding competition on Sunday. But there was minimal isolation training. It right. was all functional lifts and bodybuilders had more of a specific focus on diet and, you know, sort of the, the physique orientation, but a lot of the great guys that had good genetics obviously would have beautiful bodies from Olympic sure. lifting. And so, interestingly, and I share this in my lectures, and it blows a lot of people's minds, at the same time that bodybuilders were mastering functional exercise and then you got Bill Pearl, who wrote his book, Keys to the Inner Universe, which is really like a magnum opus. Have you seen that book? Oh, that would blow your mind, Do you man. have it? I've got it. Yeah. It's like 900 pages of really? free weight bodybuilding. It's like the magnum opus for yeah. bodybuilding. And, and so later he wrote his book, Getting Stronger, which switched to most all machine training, and I've studied this extensively, and you see pictures of Franco Colombo, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, and a lot of the bodybuilders, Frank Zane, and you rarely ever saw them doing anything but free weightlifting, right? You know, bodybuilding, but with free sure. weights, right? But then once Nautilus came along and Arthur Jones, and he started paying big money for bodybuilders to show up at his centers 
where they would get thousands of dollars to come work out there and they would market it, that triggered off this avalanche of isolation training on machines. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of interesting caveats here. While the bodybuilders were developing physiques with functional weightlifting and free weights, the polio era came. So what happened is that nurses were tasked with doing manual exercises to isolate muscles because if you have polio and it's affecting your lower cervical spinal cord nerve roots, it'll shut off your biceps, your triceps, and your delts, right? C5, C6, C7, for example. So what they would do is they had this concept. They found if they could keep exercising the muscles, that it slowed the rate of tissue loss and they were hoping that it would stimulate neuron development, even though at the time they weren't sure if that would work because that was when they thought brain cells and nerve cells were one time only, never regenerated. So through the polio era, interestingly, the rehab community went from integrated training to isolation training. And as they became isolationists in the rehab community, the machine era came on. So you saw... The physical therapists who used to focus on posture and functional movement because if someone was injured, you had to get them back to work and back to being a mother and back to being a carpenter or whatever. And then the whole industry changed and nurses that were tasked with all this isolation training became physical therapists. And that's how the field of physical therapy began. Interesting. It emerged out of the polio era, wow. and nurses were tasked with doing all this stretching and exercise all the time, so they developed a school of training called physical therapy. And the physical therapists went further and further, not only into isolation training, but then they got away from training that's even functional and got into isokinetics. And isokinetics do not apply in an on-land gravitational experience. Unless you're uh, swimming in water or paddling a boat, you don't have constant resistance Nothing we do in a field of gravity gives us an isokinetic environment. Right. And so... But wouldn't that be the ideal scenario for challenging a muscle? Uh, so, only if you don't want it to have functional strength because your nervous system's recording the length-force relationships, mm -hmm. speed of movement. It's very elaborate. And, and you know, uh, to quote Alvar Meal, train slow, be slow. If you train at 400 degrees a second on an isokinetic machine but you're trying to do something like uh, lift a stone or pick up a hay bale or throw a baseball, a baseball pitcher, professional baseball's pitcher's arms have been tracked at 7,000 degrees a second. So if you're training at 400, even 800 degrees a second, and you're Still rehabbing a pitcher, you're going to actually train their nervous system to move much slower. And this is why a lot of boxers and martial artists and golfers got scared the hell away from weightlifting because they kept training in gyms on isolation machines moving at slow speeds and then their their punching speed slowed down their swings got all screwed up so there was a big stigma in boxing and martial arts and in golf and other precision sports that weightlifting ruined the athlete and i i had to work through all that with the boxers because i had to come into that stigma and well, i proved to them that it it wasn't true because i lifted weights and i was good enough to be on the third best boxing team in the world as an amateur and I had to fight my way on and they knew that whatever he's doing was working but so some of these things can be used very for very specific applications another example of things that people do they don't realize is using rubber band training 
rubber bands have the opposite length force relationship mm-hmm. that functional free weights do. As your muscle gets shorter and shorter, the rubber band gets tighter and tighter and puts more mm-hmm. and more resistance, but your actin and myosin filaments are more and more fully interdigitated, and mechanically they can't generate as much force. Right. There's no way to do it. They don't have any length tension relationship, and they become electrically locked up. Mm-hmm. It's, it goes into a tetanus state. So uh, I've seen... Uh, plenty of athletes get tendonitis because they keep using rubber band training. And so as they load the muscle at end range, it overloads the musculotendinous junctures and flames tendons causes musculotendinous trauma from overexposure to that. And it gives you the long length, wrong length force profile for almost any functional activity. But if you mix those activities and you give yourself short periods of exposure to them, be it isokinetic training. There's a many different techniques I use for building strength in athletes or even training bodybuilders, such as training the angle. Like I put people on a Swiss ball instead of a preacher curl, have you roll forward on the ball. So now you're hitting peak length force when your forearm's parallel to the oh, ground. Yeah, and as sure. you fatigue, I have you roll back a little bit. And then you get to the point where you're laying over this way. Right. And now, so what happens is you train that muscle from one end to the other lengths and you know one set like that make your arms so sore you won't comb your hair for a week right but it will grow the hell out of you but the interesting thing is that we went from functional bodybuilding and functional rehab to isolationist rehab which then spilled off into isolationist bodybuilding and has a guy who's consulted for countless elite athletes, sports teams, Olympic committees, militaries. I've shown them over and over again. In fact, uh, when I first worked for the Canberra Raiders, a famous rugby team in Australia, they were having all sorts of problems. And I said, one of the problems you have is all these machines. They had just spent almost $300,000 on hammer strength and Cybex and all this stuff. And I said, this is I did motor skills testing on their athletes and showed they had very, very poor motor skills. In fact, I, I proved it to them and said, Look, I'll do the same test and I could blow almost everybody on the team away. And so they were like, holy shit, what the hell's going on here? I think that you have to acknowledge the value of some isolation in the rehab st- setting where you're teaching somebody how to move again, right? So yeah. if someone has dysfunctional movement patterns and you say, hey, go do this functional movement, doesn't necessarily mean the functional movement is going to get better if there's already a, a dysfunction that exists, right? Yeah. So my, my approach is always like, let's isolate this. Yeah. Let's make you stronger in this very specific thing while we integrate the function, right? So, you know, someone has some lack of hip stability. Yeah. Doing more squats may not be the thing to introduce more hip stability, right? So no. how do we isolate that dysfunction of the hip or that weakness yeah. of the hip and then reintegrate? That would be my approach. Well, that's that. how I, I teach a technique called isolate then integrate. Right. That's exactly it. But you can't, for example, if someone's got a uh, spinal pathology, like uh, compression of the L5-S1 nerve root. Sure. And you're trying to get them to do squats and they can't fire their hamstrings properly. You're just going to build them a deeper and deeper into a compensation pattern. You'll end up with excessive recruitment of the lumbar erectors, excessive recruitment of the calves, which can lead to posterior knee pain, lead to low back problems. And if you keep loading that athlete, what happens is the body keeps reaching further and further for compensation strategies. Yep. And you can actually get athletes who will initiate hip extension from their neck extensors, mm-hmm. which then sets them up for a lifetime of chronic tension, headaches, and neck dysfunction, and so on and so forth. So there's a whole science to this, and that's what I teach in my programs is how to figure all this out. But my book, Movement That Matters, if you haven't seen that, might have a copy here I can give you. It goes through the basic principles of that. 
And so that's why there's so much assessment involved in my system because you have to assess the neurology of the of course, body. You yeah. have to assess the range of motion of the body. You've got to assess joint motion. You've got to figure out why there's a problem in the system. You have to assess each of the key muscle systems, the internal systems, such as the transverse abdominus, pelvic floor, the inner unit, the rotator cuff, the hip rotators, all the key stabilizer systems. But the problem is, is the instant you put somebody on a machine, it'll shut their core stabilizer systems off right. because the body operates on what's called the men's theory, minimal electrical neuromuscular stimulation. So it, the body will not turn anything on that it doesn't have to. It's right. a survival strategy. Yep. So if you put people... In a stable environment like a Smith machine, then they will develop their outer unit muscles, their prime movers, without co-developing the stabilizer Completely. system, yep. which is like putting a bigger and bigger engine in a Volkswagen, but not improving the suspension or the brakes or right. uh, putting bigger tires on it to handle all that horsepower. And that's why all the body bullets are broken. Oh, yeah. So I've shoulders, rehabbed. So elbows, so knees, and, and terrible course. I've rehabbed mountains of body bullets yeah. in my career. Bad lower back. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And so what happens is the phasic system becomes so strong, it just tears the joints apart. It literally just dismantles the system because you cannot handle the internal force. There's tremendous internal force on joints. Like if you isometrically contract your biceps, that long head of the biceps is going in front of the glenohumeral joint. It's trying to push the humeral head right out the back of the joint. Mm -hmm. So your body's built so your triceps crosses the joint mm -hmm. and you get a co-contraction. Right. The brain fires that in a co-contraction to stabilize that joint. So the harder you fire the biceps, the harder you have to fire the triceps right. in a co-contraction, or you will ruin the joint. Mm -hmm. So if you start stabilizing and using preachers and all sorts of props, you actually can create an imbalance between the stabilizer system and the prime mover system. And so mountains of athletes that train on bodybuilding equipment using bodybuilding tactics end up with injuries that nobody can figure out why these injuries won't go away. It's just dysfunctional movement patterns. Dysfunctional. Well, they've actually rewired the motor system right. so that they've developed the phasic system without the tonic system. The tonic is the postural system and the stabilizer system. <laughs> it's predominantly slow twitch and it is, there's a lot of neurology involved in it. But So I pioneered the concept of primal pattern movements and showed how you have to test all this stuff, figure out what's wrong, and then based on what movement patterns are dysfunctional, you have to go back and isolate and progressively integrate, and I developed stages of integration so that it was done in a structured way that worked with how the body actually worked. But uh, so many athletes got caught in this... Uh, concept of machine training and it was many coaches were didn't know any better right so you know i've i've probably made millions of dollars to be honest with you because of that but i met huge amounts of resistance when i started teaching this stuff because so many people just couldn't believe that they could be that wrong right and they were like where'd you get the research i got it out of your journals I actually got it out of the physical therapy journals, out of medicine and science and sports and exercise and all the advanced journals out of textbooks of kinesiology and biomechanics and use their own science to show them. And I studied neurological rehabilitation and the science of the nervous system and the integration of the inner unit and the outer unit. And I studied European literature. I studied with Vladimir Yonda. I studied with uh, Carol Levitt, who wrote the book Manipulative Therapy and the Rehabilitation of the Locomotor System, which is a very comprehensive book looking at everything that can affect the motor system. And I studied infant development. So I, I came loaded, right? 
So in 88, I started unveiling this and I had uh, one lecture called Train the Movement, Not the Muscle. Another one called a neurodevelopmental approach to conditioning. So I showed how the system actually is wired, how infant development works, how we have to have these movements to survive in nature. So it it uh, set up um, a lot of problems. So uh, I was going to ask you, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how you'd advise athletes that want a combination of physique improvement and motor skills development such as speed agility flexibility coordination balance power and endurance Mm -hmm. enhancement to deviate from so much isolation training but you kind of alluded that you do mix functional yeah you you have to so obviously the more you isolate the more dysfunction you're creating right yeah that's pretty obvious so i think it you know the way i envisioned is just kind of like this venn diagram right like so where do these things overlap so you've got You've got mobility, stability, strength, hypertrophy being, you know, another aspect of that. So and where, power. And power, sure. Where are you trying to sit within that um, kind of continuum, right? So if I'm trying to be very hypertrophy focused, well, I'm probably going to spend a little more time in isolation, although I'm certainly going to spend a lot of time integrating function mm-hmm. as far as percentages. It's going to be completely dependent on where someone's starting. So if I have someone coming in with already pre-existing dysfunctional movement patterns, I have to create... Uh, stability and be able to access those ranges before I can integrate more functional movement patterns. Because ideal scenario, I want everyone squatting, want everyone deadlifting, want everyone doing you know typical d- dumbbell free weight style movements. But if yeah. they're if they're executing those with poor functional movement patterns, so I have to re-educate the the nervous system on how to do it correctly. And sometimes that takes some isolation work, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want to isolate the way the body moves, develop isolated strength and make sure we balance out the body. And then bang, all of a sudden now I can do those functional movement patterns better. So every workout that I, that I um, write will integrate some level of function and isolation. And, and depending on where the person is in the continuum, um, if they're already really, really efficient and effective at the functional movements, then I'm going to do more of those. And if they're not, or conversely, if they're trying to um, hypertrophy muscles, I'm certainly going to incorporate a degree of function and isolation. I think they're both useful. Whereas if someone is um, really, really um, poor at the functional movement patterns, I'm going to incorporate those just with more frequency and less um, load, right? Yeah. So I need you doing them often. I need you doing a lot of them, like yeah, multiple you times a day. Yeah, you got to use high volume to train the nervous system. Train the, right, exactly. So And paying attention to where the body, where the body wants to break down and then just like, isolating that, you know, hips shoulders, spine, those are typically going to be the places that I'm going to look at as far as optimizing someone's ability to execute these functional movement patterns. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, one of the things I was going to sort of share with you, there's a couple of things, you know, do you you know much about Eugene Sandow and some of the feats of strength he used to do? I don't. Oh, wow. You'd be blown away. I mean, uh, just search Eugene Sandow. But right now, if you go on Netflix in the search function and type in Eugene Sandow, mm-hmm. there's a new series that just started all about the strong men of the older era. Mm-hmm. And they started off with Eugene Sandow. So it's quite an impressive cool. expose of yep. what he's able to do. But I studied the history of these guys and used to have, I still have quite a lot of books on it. You can see some of my posters on the wall from mm-hmm. the old days. But when you start looking at people like Eugene Sandar, uh, Sandow, Arthur Saxon, and, and a bunch of these guys, the things that they could do, like Sandow, uh, I've got a picture of him in his book, Life is Movement. He's got a tree that they sawed so that it's stretched across like two sawhorses. It's, it's a big tree, yeah. right? 
like a full-on tree that they shaved off, and there's like 19 people standing on it, and he squatted that damn thing. He used to take a, a horse and pull the stirrups over and stand up with the horse and walk around with it on stage. There's, I can see this. There's, there's, I got in the pictures Netflix, of it, yeah. The it was, a, it was a, probably a big pony, not a full-grown sure. horse, but still almost impossible <laughs> yeah. to, to imagine. He used to lay on his back, and I think it's called the fish, the yoga pose, and they would put boards across him, and Model T cars would drive over him. Right. He would do all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, Sando actually first began his career as a strongman in Germany – they used to have these machines when he was a young guy. You know, he was a circus performer when he was young, but he was wickedly strong. And they had these machines with a like a force meter in it. It was probably a big spring in there. And you would pull down and all the guys in the bar would compete to see who could get the highest reading on it. Well, what Sandow used to do was go out to these bars, excuse me, these bars at night, and he would bend the steel bars that was the handle. He would literally wrap the thing around wow. and so that everybody couldn't figure out who in the world was strong enough to bend these steel bars you know it's like a stolid shaft of steel uh, you know they had to have strong enough to handle the force of maxing the machine out which hardly anybody could ever do so he would go <laughs> curl the bars and so what he would do is he'd go at night and try to do as many of them as he can and the, then the cops would get involved and then it would be in the news and so there was this big hunt for the guy who was strong enough to do that, and he used it to market himself as a strongman. Brilliant. And that's how he sort of started his marketing himself, is eventually let the cat out of the bag that he was the one doing it all, and wow. they couldn't believe it. The cops arrested him, and so they, they said, okay, you've got to prove to us. So he showed them that he could do it, and then they realized that they couldn't really arrest him for it because he was actually using the machine. He was just that strong. Right. <laughs> wow. But the point I'm getting to is when you look at what a lot of these guys were doing. Now, remember, Eugene Sando was doing his feats of strength in the late 1800s. There was no such thing as vitamins. There was no protein powders. There was no supplements. Maybe to his advantage, right? This was all done with natural food. training, and he was... But food was different then. He's, but I'm reaching a point. Today, I don't know of any steroid-using athlete, strength athlete, power lifter, who could reproduce a lot of these feats what does that say about what we're doing with all this supplementation and wraps and straps and props and well, we're drugs? Trying, we're trying to make things easier. It's the human way, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, you know, you know that he put it in the work. You know that yeah. he did it as his job. Yeah. And we're not looking for that now. Nobody wants to put in the work. Everyone wants the easy way, right? Get, yeah. What's the fastest way for me to get there? Yeah. Rather than what's the best way for me to get be great at something. Yeah. What's the fastest way? Well, can I? Will this supplement make it faster? Will this fat loss, fat burner make me lose fat faster? Yeah. Well, maybe, but that shouldn't be always the objective, right? The objective is getting better and becoming the best version of yourself, and not looking for the corner to cut. And that's something that I had to learn, right? And then during my career, like everyone's always looking for the way to cheat, and still being conscious of that natural human instinct to cut corners. I think there's a lot to be said, man. And in everything we do, I think we're ruining the world with our, our constant attempt to just 
we're going to make this easier for you, right? We're going to yeah. we're going to make your house more convenient, so you have to move less. Yes, you know we're going to produce food faster, so the quality is yeah. less. We're going to have you take supplements, so you don't have to pay attention to food. Now you yeah. can eat fast food. It's just all, all these these ideas of of and you can order something on Amazon, and before you even walk to the front door, it's already there from around the world. Right. Not oh. to mention that that's you know. Right, putting a huge you carbon don't footprint. Don't even have to walk to the end of your street to the mailbox. Yeah, like we're gonna. Deli- what do you mean? I have to actually walk somewhere to get this? Oh my god, not god walking. Bid. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing, and I've watched all this. <clears throat> you know, Sandow was five foot nine, two hundred and eleven pounds at his peak. He could take a three hundred and one pound dumbbell and clean and press it with one arm. It's impressive. Yeah, and this is well-documented, all this stuff. This isn't just wives' tales. And I've got several books in my library showing him doing some pretty wild stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was even guys, there was another guy, I forget, got his name, um, Avialon or something from France, who was also another one of these mind-blowing, super strong guys. Yeah. But this guy was very lazy, the French guy. I watched a, a segment on the show. But anyhow, that show that is a series. If you type in Sando, you'll come up and it shows like says something strong men or something series. You'll find it on Netflix. It's really good. There's another guy called the Mighty Adam that was a five foot four guy that used to do feats of strength that no one's ever been able to reproduce. Like just crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, you have to check him out. But you know, so then we see all this supplementation and all this stuff, and I and I agree with you. People aren't willing to do the work, and so there's I got two things I'm setting you up to get somewhere here. I did research years ago because I had uh, some parents freaking out because um, their young teenage boy they found out he was on steroids, and I've had run across this several times in my career. And so I wanted to find out, well, what's the prevalence of steroid use amongst young men and what does the research show? And I found a research paper showed that they studied Pop Warner football players, you know, so which is 13-year-olds, right, Mm -hmm. elementary school. And they found 13% of Pop Warner football players were on steroids. And then they investigated where they were getting from. The most common answer they got in their surveys is either the big brother or dad. Then they asked why. And the most common answers were because in order to keep up with the bigger guys, they need the drugs and we want our son or my brother to become a professional athlete. So they're trying to grease the tra- the rails for them. And so the where I'm leaning with this is that, look, we've got all this drug use and all this supplement use, but clearly in my opinion, from my studies, we can't do what strong men used to do with just good natural food. And yeah. we've got kids taking steroids. I mean, 13% of kids that are 12 and 13 year old using steroids and research shows that only 3% of all college athletes ever make a pro team or, or excuse me, only 3% of athletes that try out for a professional sports teams actually make it. Mm-hmm. So really, I would like to hear what you have to say about two things. First of all, what are the risks of using steroids, no matter who you are, for these kinds of concepts, whether it be for making your muscles bigger to be a bodybuilder or to to be, you know, to accelerate yourself as an athlete, and what do you feel about kids being put on steroids hoping to make a professional sports team yeah i mean 
there's a lot to unpack there, right? There's a lot to talk about. And it's obviously absurd. And, and I see it as young as seven years old with, you know, my son being on a hockey team, how competitive the parents can get. Yes. They have these kids skating. Unbelievable. Four hours a day and they're seven years old, uh, like five days a week. I'm like, are you out of your, like having been a professional athlete, having trained a lot of professional athletes, having been involved in professional hockey, I can see how it's just going to destroy the kids. Like I, yeah. I see how parents are, are literally destroying their psyche. The kids don't love it. The parents are making them do it. And because I've been there, I realize that I, I don't even wish it on my kids. Yeah. Like professional sports is amazing. If that's the only thing in the world that you, you dream about and you think about all day, like absolutely go do it. But to be forced into something, there's so many kids that are touted as the next great thing and they fail yeah. And they don't even have the skills to fold their laundry or, right. or, or open a yeah, bank account. Yeah, they're too out of balance. Right. So I, I don't think that parents should should wish that on their kids. They should wish whatever makes their kids happy and wish them to be the best version of whatever they choose to be. If my son decides he wants to be a lumberjack, I'm going to say, that's awesome. You're going to be the best yeah. lumberjack in the world. Figure out how to be the best lumberjack in the world. But I'm not going to push them into something that's not what they want to do. You know, that's a big, big thing is just parents trying to fulfill, as you say, their own wishes or their own yeah. failures. On All children are tasked with the unfinished lives of their parents, and there you see it. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely true. And with respect to steroids, um, I, I want people to know that there's so much you can do without it. Yeah. You know, and I'd be a hypocrite to say that I didn't, but um, I wish I hadn't. You know, I wish I had explored the real opportunity that exists in developing who I am as a man in pushing myself well beyond what I did naturally, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the big thing people want to do is they want to accelerate it. Okay, well, how about we learn the skill? How about we become a master of the skill, you know, the 10,000-hour rule? How about we learn how to become a master of our mind? How about we learn to become a master of nutrition? And all those things that we can absolutely control, but we're too lazy to. Yeah. You know, those are all the things I teach now for every bodybuilder. I'm like, I treat everyone like they're a natural athlete. I don't care what you do on the side. You're going to be treated like you're a, national, a natural athlete. You're going to pay attention to your sleep. You're going to pay attention to your nutrition. You're going to pay attention to your stress. You're going to pay attention to your soul, your spirituality. And how do we get all of those things in place and then realize how much potential you actually have is so much greater than you actually think because everyone uses the cop out of I don't have time or the genetics or whatever yeah. they want to use as an excuse. Or everyone else is doing it. Right, right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Like if, if you learn the things that are most important, like the work ethic and the skill, you're going to go so much further than anyone else will, right? Because there's, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of bodybuilders who fail very, very young because yeah. they don't develop the work ethic and the skill. They just depend on the external things, right? They, they don't, don't take just that fail internal. as a bodybuilder. They get very sick and die. Sure. And, but they, they, they put the onus on things outside of themselves and go, oh, if I just have the best nutrition program or if I have a better coach or if I have a better steroid program, I'm going to succeed. And all that's bullshit. It's all an internal thing. If you can, you can create the conversation with yourself and take that ownership and say, if I'm willing to do the work, if I'm willing to pay attention, if I'm willing to read the thousands of books like Paul Check, I can be a, a, a genius at this stuff. You know, people look at what you do now and like, oh, he's blessed or something. And then <laughs> I come into your house and you go, holy shit. Like, I don't know that there's another human on the planet that's done this. And that's why you succeed. Well, there you, probably is, but. Few. Yeah. Um, so you look at an athlete and go, okay, you want to be great. Are you willing to do what it takes? And if you're not, 
that's okay. Find the thing on the planet that draws you to that so that you are willing to do whatever it takes, right? So this drew you to it, right? You don't walk into somebody's house who's read thousands and thousands of books and say, hey, your dad told you to do this, didn't he? Like, no, <laughs> right? So yeah. if your son doesn't or daughter doesn't want to be in that sport, let them find the thing they do because they'll become this good at something. Yes. If they find that thing that's just like pulling them. It's their passion. It's yeah. the heart. You know, it's when your juices are flowing. Yep. You know, when we are doing what we love to do, we make love while we're doing it. Oh, man. If we're doing what we think we have to do, we're just doing what someone else is telling us yeah. to do. And we just get Living smaller and smaller. Dream. And paradoxically, the better we get at it for them, the worse we feel because we're more controlled by them. Yep. You know, so it's a dead end road. Yeah, you're either going to live your own dreams or someone else is going to help you fulfill theirs. Yeah, well, you know, there's an old saying if you're not living your own, if you're not working for your own goals, you are working for your bosses. Yeah, for somebody else's. Um, yeah. I just also wanted to tell you something interesting. If you, I, I don't know if it's still there, but I found it years ago when I was doing research on Eugene Sandow. If you go on Google Video and type in Eugene Sandow, there's actual old-fashioned videos of him on stage doing backflips with 25-kilo dumbbells in each hand. Wow. That's not even... Try that one on for size. That's <laughs> fifty pound, 52 pounds, right. something, 50-something pounds in each hand. What's 2.2 pounds times 25? It's... 55. 55 pounds. Yeah, so. And he's jumping up and doing backflips with them things in his hands. I've never seen anybody that could come close to that. That's brass balls, baby. Yeah, that's nuts. Now, and another thing, and, and I'll kind of start wrapping it up here. I got a lot. I could talk to you for a long time, so we we, we got to do this again, you know, and get into all sorts of neat stuff. I think you'd actually be fascinated by what I teach. So sometime I have to. I'll be attending some courses. Man. No question. Of, no question. Uh, you know, it gets deep. My program design courses, I think, blow your socks off. We get into it deep, you know, but. Uh, in his book, Life is Movement, Eugene Sandow said something quite profound. And as a therapist who'd studied extensively the anatomy and physiology of the internal systems and how they regulate the musculoskeletal system and stuff that's way too much to get into right now. But I'm sitting here as a now very educated, skilled therapist when I'm probably 36 or so, and I came across... I did. I had a, a researcher find everything in the world that Eugene Sandow had published. So I then tracked all these books down and bought them. And some of them are very hard to get a hold of, like Life is Movement, which I found in Watkins Bookstore in downtown London, which is a very good place to find stuff like that. And I bought two copies. Um, and I'm reading that book. And there's a place in the book where he'd said something that made me so fucking proud of him and made me realize how dialed in this guy was. And here's what he said. No man can achieve optimal physical strength until all his organs are healthy. Completely true. That was written in 1929. Amazing. He was bright. He was obviously an educated man. Well, you know what he did for a living? No. He ran schools for corrective exercise and traveled the world teaching people basic bodybuilding and weightlifting and athletic development. He was consulted by the British military. He did exactly what I do to the T. Hmm. In fact, I went into London specifically to see the exact building that his center used to be in in London. I stood right there, right at the place, and did my little prayer for Eugene Sandow. But... 
you know, the reason I'm bringing this up with you is because bodybuilding has become such um, an illness-generating sport. And with all the drugs and all the excessive protein eating and supplements. Dysfunction and injuries. And and it goes against the premises of what bodybuilding was for. You know, bodybuilding was began and Eugene Sandow, it's his body that's on the Mr. Olympia trophy. That's Eugene Sandow you get handed, right? That's what you were trying to do is get Eugene Sandow in your hands. Isn't that amazing? Yep. And... Here's the guy that set the precedence and ran the first bodybuilding competition in the world in London, England in the year 1900. And his whole modus operandi was to teach you to love and respect yourself, to become physically strong, to become capable, to become healthy, to eat well, to become vital and contribute to the world. And it makes me sad watching bodybuilding turn into something that really should be more like... um a special genre for very, very unusual people on television that we look at. Like if, like when we see a woman who gets a boob job and her boobs are like 15 D and she's got something like cow's udders, people look at that and go, what on earth was she thinking? And not to mention, I've had to rehab, plenty of injured necks, backs, and shoulders from women that did that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But we look at that, and we don't say, oh, isn't that beautiful? We go, what is wrong with her? What happened? psychologically wrong, yeah. What happened? Yeah. And so there, she's got the boobs where we've got people going crazy to create bodies that are unachievable without drugs and without deteriorating your internal systems. They Mm -hmm. don't enhance your longevity. I'm just... I'm concerned. So it's a business, right? It's that, a business, this where, yeah. This is where it went wrong. Is there's a, is a business perpetuating freaks. Yeah. Because people want to see freaks. People are going to go to the circus. You know, people want to see people do things that are unusual. Yeah. And then the business perpetuates that. The bigger you get, the more we're going to reward you. Because yeah. you know, I don't care about your health as a business owner. I want you to make me money, right? Yeah. And that's just the unfortunate way it's been perpetuated. So it's really become showmanship. And Completely. It's a, yeah. it's a show. Yeah. Yeah, and there's always people who want to see those people. Nobody wants to see the guy who looks good on the beach with who's very healthy, yeah. even though he can do cool feats of strength, right? Everyone wants yeah. to see the guy who's just like, oh my goodness, how did he ever look like that? He looks like he's a freak. Yeah. And that's what they pay for. That's the unfortunate yeah. reality, but that's just what it is. And it's never going to go away. People talk about no. bodybuilding dying. It's not going away. There's always going to be someone willing to do stupid shit to their body, myself included, right? That's Where's it going to go, though? What do you do next? I don't know. I mean, that's I that's my question. I mean... Look, it takes a lot of energy to get a rocket to break out of Earth's gravitational field. Mm -hmm. And we know that we can do it, but it takes millions and millions of dollars and teams of scientists to make it happen. Mm -hmm. We've reached the point in bodybuilding now where if we go one step further, it's actually almost a guarantee that you're going to seriously shorten or end your life. Yeah, no doubt. There's guys that are right now that are either retiring or, or dying because of that. Oh. Um, so I don't know where it's going to go next. And maybe the next step is you know, drug testing it all. But then again, nobody wants to see those guys, right? Nobody wants to see the guys who don't look like freaks. So I, I don't know where it's going to go. It's an interesting question. It will evolve like everything. Yeah. Um, you know, They tried to tone it down by introducing what they call the classic physique division, which yeah. just ends up being guys who don't want to – it's just different structures. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's – uh, 
I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. What does it say about us as human beings when we're only entertained by people that are destroying themselves to get our attention? Well, why are the Kardashians famous, right? Who are they? Yeah, you don't know who the Kardashians are. No. So there's a group of three or four girls who are multi, probably billion, I'm certainly billionaires now, who are Hollywood, Beverly Hills. Is this the two blonde chicks that no, keep doing silly shit? No, oh, that's the brunettes. Hilton sisters or something. Yeah, that, yeah, these are the brunettes. So they're they're have absolutely nothing to contribute to the world, yet they're they're literally, everyone's worth billions of dollars, and they're not even 25 or 27 years old just because they go on Instagram or wherever and, and post picture, pics of themselves or, or do their, their boobs or do their butt or do their lips or something. And I don't know anything about them, but they're all multi-billionaires. Jesus. Right. Because people want to see some girl who's got a huge ass or some girl who's, you know, got doing funny stuff with their makeup. It's, it's comical how America has shifted toward this um, glamorization of uh, material goods. Yeah. Like if you have a new bag every week, yeah, and a new like Louis Vuitton bag, you're going to be on famous on Instagram. And that's just the reality. You know, Jung and many others warn Joseph Campbell that when a culture's myth begins to break down, that you start to see these kinds of breakdowns in society. And they both talked about the fact, and James Hollis talks about this, several others that are very skilled in understanding the psychology of human beings that, we are using consumerism as a means of covering up our pain of a lack of connection and a lack of understanding about oh, who sure. we are and, and what we're here and what our relationship to the universe is. Mm-hmm. So in uh, many ways, it's a symptom of, of a race that's lost its way, lost does, its how contact. How does he suggest we fix it? Well, the, the, the way that you, you fix it, in my opinion, is, well, if you don't, uh, fix it, then you end up in a crisis because it's coming. How, how do you, you know, look, one of the side effects, for example, of using Botox is that you paralyze your facial muscles and now you cannot experience the emotion of a smile. Mm-hmm. So what they're finding is all this Botox in the face is leading people into states of permanent um, depression sure. because they can't smile anymore. And they forget that the body and the emotions and the mind are all wired together. So, the way we fix it is we go through a crisis and we go through a crisis of self and we do that individually. We do it in families. We do it in towns. We do it in nations and we do it collectively. And so we're actually going through a crisis of self and that crisis is coupled with scientific materialism where we don't believe anything that can't be weighed and measured. There is no God. The myths are all bullshit. They're scientifically invalid, but that's not what a myth is for God's sakes. I mean, it cracks me up. Science is, oh, these myths are invalid. They're not scientifically proven. Well, you fucking forgot what a myth is, goddammit. <laughs> it's a fucking story that has a meaning that's not obvious, like an allegory. If someone says this guy's worth his weight in gold, you don't <laughs> fucking steal him and try to cash him in. Right. You don't go weigh him in a laboratory and say, well, exactly, how much is he worth on the market today? Right. Unless you're a fucking moron. <laughs> and so, paradoxically, we've got smart morons running the goddamn country, running the education system. And I, it blows my mind, you know. It's just like, uh, you know, I don't have the answers except to say that I devoted my life to helping the people that got far enough into these traps that they realized they needed something else. And I'll tell you what the answer's always been. 
It's the same answer that's always happened when we're in a lot of pain or when we're lost or confused. You find spirituality. You find your connection to the greater whole. You come to the realization that you can't be here without your family. And you can't be here without the earth. And you can't be here without the water. And you can't be here without the sun. And you can't be here without the air. And you say, where'd that come? And you say, well, the sun's out there. But the sun's part of the galaxy. And the galaxy's part of the universe. And the Oh my God, you mean we're the whole universe? Yes, we are the universe. The sun is looking through your eyes. The moon is moving your water. Everything that's out there that seems so far away from us while we got our face stuck to an iPad or something, we're totally forgetting that that is part of us. That is what we are. And that, you know, we don't look at the stars, a lot of people anymore. They're too busy looking at television. We're killing nature because we think it's alive on television and in zoos. So, you know, all these things... Basically, we have to come to a crisis that forces us deeper into figuring out who and what we are. The question is, how far can we go before we figure it out? Because, you know, the crisis is on such a global scale that the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and the mineral kingdom are being sucked down the tube with us, which is scary. And, you know, I'm I'm not asking you to solve the problem. I'm just saying I'm bringing it up because when I look at bodybuilding, and I look at what's going on, and you talk about the, you know, the Kardashians and the Hilton. I didn't know. I've heard the Kardashians, but I, I don't watch that stuff. I, mm-hmm. I don't get sucked in. I, I try to stay off of all that stuff because sure. I have to heal the people that are caught in it right. as a therapist. But I, because bodybuilding is an example of just how far we're willing to go. I mean, I remember the first time I was in Gold's Gym. And I saw a guy walking through the gym and he had these massive calves, but I watched him. I said, those calves don't move when he walks. Those are not, what the fuck's going on? This right. guy has implants. And then he turned around, he had these huge pec implants. And the next thing I saw a guy with washboard abs, but he, they didn't move with his body. I'm like, what the hell? I got guys covered in plastic in the gym. And I'm like, what in the world are we doing? This is like, it's going out there, man. It's just like, for me, well, I'm here talking with you, and I'm glad I'm here talking with you because I've watched enough videos on you, and I've spent enough time with you now to see that you are a medicine carrier because you've been far enough down the rabbit hole to have a very honest look at it. And if there's anybody out there that I've met that's been down that rabbit hole but found his feet, it's you. I hope you're ready to handle the responsibility that you have through awareness of what's going on. Uh, well, I'm learning, right? And like like all of us, it's a journey, and I I hope to be able to positively impact the fitness community, right? This is this is my people, right? These are people yeah. who I connect with, and hopefully they connect with me, and I hope I can and influence them in a positive way to to not have to feel the need because ultimately that's what it is, right? They're filling a need, yeah. and um, realize that that need isn't going to be filled by all of these external things that you think it's going to be. The vanity is not the, yeah. not the cure, right? Buying the next pair of sneakers is only really cool for about 10 minutes. Once you warm five, a couple of times, they're not cool anymore. Those yeah. external things are not the answer to your issues. And yeah. I wish somebody had told me that when I was 15 or 16 years old, you know, starting to read magazines. And I think fitness and health is the best thing in the world. I don't, I'm not trying to put down bodybuilding. I'm just saying the reason why the reason behind why you do it is very important, and, and the approach you take is very important. Um, and that's you know, really where I'm trying to clarify my message. Part of what I'm doing 
is not putting bodybuilding down and making a distinction I understand, yeah. between what bodybuilding really is right. I completely get and it. what it's become. Bodybuilding is the greatest opportunity to, to build your strongest, best body. No question. Which when, is when, your healthiest, best body. Right. Which is when done in an intelligent way, you should be strong, resilient, yeah. uh, mobile, flexible, um, you know, all these other... You should be a great example for what anyone could be. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'm spending, you know, I'm I'm honestly fighting the battle right now of unwinding 20 years of the wrong approach to bodybuilding, right? Yeah. And my physical body is a manifestation of that. I've got some injuries. I'm not too bad, but um, I'm I'm over the next couple of years bringing this body into a place where I am able to maintain this optimal functional movement, and and you know I want to be able to run and jump and 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 swim and and things that I haven't been able to do for 20 years. Well, you're lucky. You know why? Because you're my buddy now. <laughs> you can help me do it. And I'm your elder. Yeah. Well, man, listen, um, I, you know, I'm a great student and um, I'm, I'm looking to do whatever I need to do to live a long, healthy, vibrant, um, vigorous, rigorous life. And, you know, to be able to, to run with my kids and play with my kids and uh, help inspire the rest of the world. Because I love that. I love the idea of impacting people and, and taking them off that negative path. Even though I do believe, like we spoke about, everyone needs to ascend the proverbial mountain. Every man needs yeah. to have some ascension, right? You need to go through some uh, warrior phase. Yeah. Just use your term. Um, well, I can tell you how to ascend the mountain real quick. Just get yourself a wife. I tell guys all the time, I don't care if your arms are 22 inches around. If you can't get along with your wife and kids, you're fucked. You, built, you put your, all your energy into the wrong thing. Yeah. Because you're going to end up being a very alone guy with a broken family. And it's going to be you and your steroids and your chocolate protein shakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no doubt, man. No doubt. <laughs> and, man, I'm really working on the whole selfless uh relationships really trying to be committed to you know being great in every relationship that i'm in because yeah. i think that's another thing that's going on in society now we all have very very many fair weather friends and not very many good friends yeah it's hard yeah i so. tell people relationships are the temple of god interesting that's where love's at that's where growth is at, and it's where meaningful growth is at. Yeah, I think it's maybe valuable, and I your approach is, love to hear it, but like, you know, five people who you actually invest in, and those are the people you call multiple times a week, and those are the people that you support no matter what, and you're there when they're moving, you're there when they're crying, you're there when they're smiling. Yeah. I think at least five people everyone should have that are, you know, who's going to be there when you're having a hard day? Who's going to be there at your funeral? Yeah. You know, or, and are they going to give a shit, right? Because, yeah. you know, I have millions of fans and followers around the world, but but ultimately that isn't going to fulfill anything, right? That fulfills you for five seconds on Instagram to go, oh, I got a few thousand likes. Good, man. Thumbs up. Good for you. High five, fist bump. But what's actually, what actually matters, you know, it's your spouse, it's your kids, it's your, yeah. it's your really close friends. And I'm very blessed to have a couple of very, very good friends. And, you know, there's, there's certainly times where I go extended periods of time without investing in those relationships. You know, it's just the bank account, man. Make an investment. Yeah, it is hard because it takes so much for us to, make it in the world today to live a decent life yeah. you got to work hard you know yep. and i feel sorry for people you know penny's productive i'm productive angie's productive you know i generate a, a pretty good income but we somehow manage to consume it all between you know overhead at work and uh, you know we, we can save yeah. a little bit but my god it's 
it costs a lot of money today to eat really well and take good care of yourself. And it really does. And so I look at people in the world, and I'm like, this this whole capitalism thing's driving us all into complete exhaustion, so that one percent of the population can have over fifty percent of the world wealth. And it's you know this gets into a political discussion, which isn't my intention, but we're we're really in a fascist regime hiding under the under the illusion of a democracy and you know you could go all the way back to things like tesla getting his patents taken you know him showing us that we had free energy many of his inventions were very intelligent inventions he was a great spiritual teacher but the powers to be just raped him so they could make billions and billions and billions of dollars and and you know i guess in some ways, looking at it from the big picture, I guess there's a necessary evil because these are the people that force us deeper into ourselves to come up with the solutions that we can't do without each other, right? When you look at these issues of mandatory vaccination and the rampant numbers of in vaccine injuries and and brain injuries and even medical doctors just broken down in tears realizing they were sold a bill of goods and you listen to my vaccination interview with sherry tenpenny that's a ball buster Mm -hmm. that'll straighten most people right up but what i'm saying is we grow through layers of consciousness and it seems that we're drawing ourselves into situations where the only way we're going to get through these things if we start holding hands with each other and making it known we will not put up with the things that we shouldn't be putting up with, but we have to come to this realization together. We really do. We we have to come to the realization that health is beauty. And it almost feels like the powers that be, to use that term, are almost doing their best to keep us divided, right? With this well, fear, with it's this fear mongering society. Yeah. Of, the medical system's not a healthcare system; it's a disease maintenance right. system. But even television perpetuating fear and everything we do, yeah. all the news perpetuating fear, owned by the powers that be. You know, yeah. it's, it's interesting to even th- sit and think and talk about that sometime. How they're almost making it impossible for us to band together and, and have a strong stand. They're making they're separating the culture and. I mean, I don't know if it's like that all over the world, but North America certainly. But bad, we, we got to be like the Indians that get together and stop them from fracking and drilling and you know the italian people that got rid of the government that was screwing them over i mean there's there's ways out of this but we we need each other mm-hmm. and part of the problem was all this digital communication the facebooking and the instagramming it's showing it's raising depression and anxiety sure. in people and they're not having any kind of meaningful relationships and as you know people are very rude and abusive to each other because there's no consequence you don't you know you you rude and abusive to someone face to face, they might whack you. Well, no, you can't because you get sued, right? Yeah, I, I really that's something something I talk about a lot. Is I think they should allow. I mean, that probably never happened in America, but I think it should be legal to punch somebody in the face. I'm not going to come at you with a knife. I'm not going to come at you with a gun or a baseball bat. But I think it should be legal for two men or women to to stand face to face and and fight. Because it takes away. Well, not, it used to be legal to shoot it out. <laughs> sure, but but not not being able to do that takes away. The hierarchy, and I think the yeah. world needs needs a pecking order, right? Like, yeah. there's too many young kids who have just run their mouth and have no repercussions, no. and all of a sudden, oh, I can do whatever I want. F yeah. you, whoa! Like, I, you remember the first time you were punched in the mouth? I remember the first time I was yeah. punched in the mouth, and all of a sudden, I was like, oh, well, maybe I should keep my mouth shut. Yeah. You know, you learn very quickly where you kind of fit in this hierarchy. Yeah, and I think it's an important part of uh, evolution of species. It is, yeah. 
you know, there's so many heated debates on all sides of this stuff, but the reality of it is the proof's in the pudding, and here we all are. But, hey, I could go on and on because there's so much to talk about with you, and I love talking to you. We'll do it again, man. Because you've got no so question. many interesting concepts, and you've been through so much. I'll just finish with a couple short questions. Um, what does spirituality mean to you? Connecting with my myself. Um, spending time alone in silence. Um, contemplating my thoughts, contemplating my feelings, and really starting to understand who I am and how I can um, love. You know, so I've had some interesting spiritual journeys, and all I can see at the core of of me. Every time I come out of a spiritual journey, it's all I. The only thing I, that comes out that resonates with me is I am love. I, I don't know if that's the same for everybody, but that's all it is for me. Is like all I can see at my inner, inner core is I am love, and I want to be able to have the confidence and and the security in myself to be able to bring that to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's me. And again, I don't know that's everybody, but that's me. And, and I know that I still have insecurities that prevent me from expressing that uh, confidently to the world, right? Because if you come out as this big muscular guy and you come out showing everybody love, it's a bit weird. Like people are like, oh, that guys, that's weird. And so developing my um, my ability to articulate myself, my ability to bring love to more people, I think is, yeah. that's what spirituality is to me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the younger generation. I think it's the teenagers that need someone like you to hug them and tell them they're beautiful. And I think our culture makes room for a big, strong guy like you to to show that kind of love. I know I've hugged countless of my students and try to inspire them. And I think if our culture... I think we, we, we need two things. We need the adults to hug the kids more and we need kids to hug old people more because we've also segregated our old people. So now they're all alone. So paradoxically our society kind of has a a shelf date. You know, once you're 60, then you're kind of useless. You're clogging up the roads. You're not any good at work. So now they're off just kind of medicating themselves with television and drugs. But, my experience is that when older people have access to kids, it reignites them. Totally. And when kids have access to older people, they have access to empathy and compassion. Mm-hmm. And when kids and teenagers have access to strong, accomplished men and women, they have the ability to know that somebody that's really powerful thinks they're beautiful. Right. And I think and that's role models. I think that's where that makes a lot of guys sense. like you that like looking at you, any kid's gonna look at you and think you jumped right <laughs> right out of a movie set and right. say, This guy is strong as hell and he'll go run and Dad, I saw someone much bigger and stronger than you at the airport today and then dad's gonna go, What? Yeah. But, but you know, that I think that we have this ability to bridge and support each other, but I think it's there's just not enough awareness. It's almost like we've got a silent disease. And people keep looking to figure out what's wrong in the wrong places mm-hmm. and medicating it with the wrong drugs, right? And I think that's why plant medicines are booming now because that's the – to use shaman speak, the plant spirits are coming to rescue us from our own demise and say, hey, look, remember, love is the most important thing there is. And most people, if they have a properly run 
plant medicine ceremony, get find that heart is very important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, how now that you've reached the king stage of your development, uh, what areas in your life do you feel will ultimately be the focus so you can avoid a midlife crisis and efficiently enter your wise man stage? Relationships? Yeah. Yeah, so during my career, I, I very much took that for granted, right? I, I, my business was thriving, and I had a big team, as, as I told you about it, and I wasn't uh, paying I wasn't paying the, into the bank account. You know, uh-huh. I wasn't... Um, I wasn't doing a good job in relationships. I just took it for granted. I was very focused on myself uh, and accomplishing what I needed to accomplish. And I think my um, blind spot right now, even still, is being better at relationships and being better at investing and giving people what they need and the time and the attention and really focusing on those people that mean the most to me. I think that certainly will allow me to um, maintain strong bonds with people. I mean, I, there's a lot of aspects of life that I think need to be improved. And I think at part of the king stage is uh, the protection of, of the children. It's, yeah. part of, it's part of the protection of the finances and building more finances, yeah. you know, like yeah. building that security. You got to keep the empire alive. It's it's a living, yeah. breathing thing, right? Yeah. The building a legacy, you know, would yeah. be an interesting thing to, to look at. And it's something that actually Ben Greenfield brought on my radar is like, hey man, you've done great things. You need to build, you to consider building a legacy. Like what are the traditions you pass on? What are the, the belief systems that you create in your family? And, yeah. and like, how do you build that? golden moat around your house. And he puts a lot of effort into his being a great father. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And his wife's a, uh, she does a lot of great, he's, they've sent me samples of her homemade goods and it's lovely to see Ben because he's a man of fire, that guy, but he really does, he really does cherish and value his uh, responsibility as a father and speaks with tremendous love of his children. Yeah, you should join our little group. So we've got a group of guys, Kyle's in there, and as well as um, just talking about like how we can lead, create leaders, right? Yeah. So like we've got these, we've all got sons and, and daughters and how do we create leaders of tomorrow? And yeah. so we're, we're getting together, you know, once or twice a year, probably end up being once a year and doing, you know, some type of event to bring the kids along. So maybe yeah. some outdoor training or maybe some hunting or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, climbing a mountain or something to where they're all going to be challenged and we can all kind of bond together and um, just create theory, create um, uh, kind of a pr- practical approaches on how to become better dads and lead, yeah. lead a better generation of great humans. And I think that's what the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts was sure. really all about, but it seems to have petered out from what I can see. Totally. Well, I, I think anything, t- something becomes institutionalized, it just yeah. goes out the window, becomes a profit thing, and, and yeah. the dads are kind of forced to do it rather than want to do it. And yeah. Yeah. So we're just creating our own little community, man. I think um, being around great people and uh, like-minded people, you know, we all have a very holistic approach to life. We all have a very... Um, High, high value around education, high value around families and relationship. And if we all have the same values, it definitely aligns for us to all to allow these kids to grow up together and thrive together. Yeah. Hey, you know, um, relationship work is a long-term thing. I have to work on it every day. Yeah. You know, when you have two wives, you've got double the accelerated learning curve. So um I'm like you, you take on a, a good workload and I, 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 feel that that's important for me as well to grow in that department and the universe made it possible for me to not only experience the work of two wives but also experience the love of two wives Mm -hmm. and we all find that when we do the work of really 
learning to love and participate in relationships, the reward is that we have more connection and more love. And I think ultimately, um, if you go right back to what bodybuilding was, it was a bunch of guys that got together, shared recipes, shared techniques. For sure. If you go back to the ancient Gnostics, Jesus was a Gnostic. It was people that got together and said, this is how I had this enlightened experience. This is how I became one with nature. This is how I felt this God experience. Let's try it together. So guys would sit on the campfires and they would fast together and they would eat plant medicines and they would do all these spiritual practices together. But again, when that got institutionalized, it screwed the whole thing up and it became corporate religion. But really, when you look at bodybuilding and you look at the foundation of what keeps humanity growing and evolving and staying connected to each other and to nature, it really boils down to it starts from the family unit because a healthy family unit makes for a healthy community and a healthy community makes for a healthy society. A healthy society makes for a healthy culture and healthy cultures make for a healthy world. So, you know, it all starts really within ourselves and our willingness to appreciate what's most important in life. But I think as you've, and I've just shared, you have to get far enough along in your life to realize what that really is. And, and that's the hero's journey. And I'm really very proud of you and very impressed with the journey you've made because I, I, when I was watching videos and interviews with you, I said, okay, this guy's really, he's, he's engaging life. He's listening to his heart, his reasons for getting out of professional bodybuilding to devote himself to his wife and kids. You couldn't get a higher calling than that. That is the ultimate spiritual path. And what a great example that you've set for the other bodybuilders. So they don't push themselves to the end. One of the guys saying, in one of those interviews was saying, yeah, like a lot of the fighters, they don't know when to stop and they come back and just make fools of themselves. But Ben stepped down while he still had a good reputation and committed himself and to the things. my health. Then, then committed himself yep. to things we can all respect. So great work. Thank Thanks you so much for sharing your, your life and the intimacies of professional bodybuilding and being so honest because uh unfortunately a lot of them a lot of these guys lie about it you know even when it's obvious they're still lying about it you know i had to talk about that and we both know someone we were talking about that still was playing that game until it killed them but um i think you're already a great leader thank you man i really appreciate it i appreciate being here and spending this day with you hope the food was good incredible we fed you food and rocks today that's right it's good that's eh? right and wisdom yeah. Hey, like if you it. were going to die tomorrow, what would be your parting message to everybody? <sighs> Love, man. Uh, it's the only thing that comes to me is, um, you know, even even now thinking about current relationships is overcoming the fear of uh, vulnerability, right? Yeah. Like being vulnerable enough to actually open your heart and love. Yeah. And um, that's, especially for a strong man, maybe the hardest thing to do. Yeah. You know, being afraid to put your heart on the table and... um make yourself vulnerable to pain. Yeah. Um, because it's the only way I think to see through it. Yeah. I tell my students, you're not truly a man until you have equal access to your femininity. And many of them think, oh, that means I got to run around in negligees and high heel shoes. But I mean, it means to your nurture, mm -hmm. to your receptivity, to your willingness to sacrifice, to support the people you love the things that women do so very well that men have a hard time with. 
when we really can take the lessons that the women have to give us, which is why the Native American women, by the way, created the sweat lodge. Really? Do you know what the sweat lodge is? Yeah. You ever been in one? No. Well, there's a spiritual quest for to. you. I've been, I've been seeking one. I think it's time. Yeah. Well, the Native American women developed the sweat lodge because men were detached from how much work a woman had to go through to carry a baby and the pain of giving birth. So the uh. sweat lodge is actually a recapitulation of the womb and what it's like to be in the oven and to deal with the heat and the challenge of carrying a baby for nine months and the pain of giving birth. I love it. So the Native American women elders, and remember, those tribes used to be matriarchal, so the chiefs were women, and they ran everything. They developed it to initiate the men into the experience of being a mother. I had no idea. Yeah. So your first step into womanhood is to do a sweat lodge, and let me warn you, it's for real. Oh, I bet. <laughs> it's <laughs> for real, baby. <laughs> hey, love you, buddy. Love you, buddy. Can't wait to see you again. We'll do it again soon. You're welcome to heaven anytime. I got rocks waiting for you. Thanks, I got man. food waiting for you. And I won't give you steroids because you're not on them anymore, but I will give you some good tobacco and some good smoke <laughs> so that we don't get so healthy it gets boring. Perfect. I love it. Aho, great spirit. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Ben Pakulski. You can follow Ben on Instagram at bpackfitness and his website is benpakulski.com. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.